0: this is Jocko podcast number 76 with echo Charles and me Jocko Willink good evening echo good evening freedom that's something that you hear me talk about all the time and I say little things like don't take it for granted and I say be thankful for your freedom and I even say things like you don't appreciate your freedom until it's gone pretty common statements you hear from people but how many of us have actually had our freedom taken away And not metaphorically speaking and not some self-imposed and thereby self-controlled way and not in some way trapped by a situation in our life that we don't have the courage to get out of but I am talking about an actual loss of freedom caged controlled Starved beaten tortured How long can you take that for? An hour a day What about a week or a month What about a year Or six years what do you do how do you survive how do you get up every day and face the awful reality that you live in darkness fear Oppression. And how do you take that darkness and that fear and that oppression and turn it into something good? Well, it is my honor today to have with us a man that can answer those questions retired Navy Captain Charles Charlie Plum Naval Academy graduate f-4 phantom fighter pilot And prisoner of war in North Vietnam For six years Six years Sir, it is an absolute honor to have you on, and thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Jacko. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: And let's just start from the beginning okay. of Captain Charlie Plum. You were—I know you were born wearing.
1: In, I was actually born in Gary, Indiana, during World War II. My father was about to be inducted, and so he moved us to a little tiny town in Kansas, where he thought um, my mother and I and my big sister uh, could live there while he went off to war. Well, as it turned out, he couldn't pass a physical, so he didn't go to war. But that's where I grew up in a tiny town in the middle of Kansas. <laughs>
0: and I know you uh you did you went to work pretty at a pretty early age. Throwing papers, oh yes, and you referred to that in the book, and that I just—that's just a nostalgic thing,
1: isn't it? Throwing,
0: but no one throws papers anymore. It doesn't happen. There's no, no. kids with uh, paper
1: routes anymore. I guess that's true. I w- I read a statistic one time of all the of, of all the successful people in the world, most of them were paper boys when they were kids, <laughs> but not anymore. You know, the, you're right. You don't you don't see that.
0: Yeah, now they're throwing up Twitter posts. <laughs> yeah, that,
1: that's it. <laughs> no, I threw I, I threw the um, the Topeka Daily. Capital. There you go. In this little town of um, 300 people, and I had about 55 customers. the The route was five miles long, and on a cold uh, February morning in Kansas, that was a that was a long (laughs) way. I finally convinced my father that I could um, that I could could buy a motor scooter with all of my earnings, and so we went across the river where there was no bank in town. Went across the river to Perry, Kansas and uh, borrowed enough money to buy a cushman motor scooter and uh, i was only 14 when that happened yeah so um i got arrested one night Driving up my to motor no scooter, good. Up to no good. What were
0: you doing that you got arrested on the motor scooter?
1: Well, I was trying to go to the county fair.
0: Because Can you even speed on a motor scooter? Is that possible? No, no, no. no. <laughs> I, yeah, I
1: couldn't. <laughs> but I, I was small for my age, so at, at 14, I, I, I know I wasn't five feet. And, and I had my buddy on the back, and he was even smaller than I. And I think that the cops just <laughs> saw these two little kids on a motor scooter in the middle of the night, and we were arrested. <sighs>
0: And uh, at some point, I think it was, you had a, a basketball coach, there were a coach at your school that was uh, a pilot in World War II.
1: Uh, he, was, he was actually, uh, he, he was a vet, but not a pilot. Oh, okay. he, he was a, a doughboy in World War I. Oh, wow. Yeah, And he had shrapnel in his leg from his war, and he walked with a limp. Um, and, but, and he was quite a disciplinarian. Yeah. And he, he tried to make that little basketball team work, but we, we were just really not not very talented
0: what is it about I don't know when I was a kid and I would see an, you know a Vietnam vet for me that's primarily what I would see is old Vietnam vets and I'd say hey that guy's got shrapnel in his leg and walks with a limp when I grow up I want shrapnel in my <laughs> leg and I want to walk with a limp that's my goal <laughs>
1: Is that just is
0: that just part of male you know boy
1: I, nature? It, it may very well be. <laughs>
0: yeah. So so what did he tell you about about pilots? Did he explain no, that to you, or how did well, you get the idea from you know being
1: a doughboy to being a pilot? Well, uh, quite a long transition. See, this was early on in my career. Now I had a coach later in high school that had been a pilot in World War II. Okay. So uh, Bill Johnson had been uh, a pilot. In fact, uh, he Uh, uh, flew F-8s off aircraft carriers, and I was fascinated by that whole idea. But I will tell you that being a hayseed from Kansas, I never even dreamed of flying an airplane. I'd I'd never been in one. Uh, I'd seen them fly over, but the whole idea of ever even riding in an airplane, let alone piloting one, was, was beyond my grasp. It really was. And so,
0: so how did you end up then transitioning from high school, and you end up in you know going to the naval academy?
1: Well, that was kind of by accident too. Uh, I needed an education. My parents were too poor to send me to college. I started looking for scholarships, and um, I, I, my my older sister was dating a guy who was an ROTC uh, student at the University of Kansas, and he gave me a book that says, here's how you apply for the NROTC in in Kansas. Well, the back page of the book, in fairly small letters said, oh, by the way, it's the same qualifications to go to the Naval Academy. Well, what the heck?
0: Did you even know what the Naval Academy was? Or did Uh, you figure it out right there?
1: I did not know. I I really had no idea. Uh, I I didn't know about the Army-Navy game. I didn't know anything. Now, uh, my closest relative in the military was a cousin in the Coast Guard. And so I was just, I, I was just ignorant about the military in total. So, you know, I'd like i like to sit here, Jocko, and tell you that I had all these great dreams, you know, <laughs> of being a, a fighter pilot and an admiral and commanding ships and squadrons and all, but no, it was all by accident. In fact, I when I applied, well, you know, you get appointments from congressmen. Right. The congressman of my district in Kansas. Uh, did it by uh, a competitive method, and, and everybody who was interested took uh, uh, a, a government uh, test you know, to, for a G rating, you know, a, a government service rating, a GS test. And there were about 35 guys that took the test. And so he nominated five of us who, who got better scores on the test than the rest. And then he appointed one, uh, one guy to the Naval Academy and an alternate – and I was the second alternate. Okay, well, the first guy also had an appointment to to uh, the Air Force Academy, so he uh-huh. took that. The second guy discovered girls. Oh,
0: that'll, that'll <laughs> yeah, but, throw you off yeah, track, yeah. right, oh,
1: yeah, right yeah, quick yeah, from yeah. the Naval Academy. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, uh... <laughs> So I was actually the second alternate to go to, <laughs> and so I got on that Greyhound bus in Kansas City, Kansas, and uh, two days later, it took me two days to get to, uh, to, to Washington, D.C., and, and of course, I was seeing country I'd never seen before. Um, and that's when I, Raise my hand as you did, and pledge to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic.
0: And then, at some point at the at the na- did you did you know about naval aviation? I guess you did from uh, from Bob Johnson. Yeah, he told you about naval aviation. Did you have that thought in your mind of naval aviation at that point?
1: Not really. I still uh, I still kind of assumed that I could never qualify to do that. You know, and and in thinking back at it, you know, I think, well, where were my dreams? But um, kids that grow up in little towns don't usually have big dreams. We don't know how to do that. And my parents, my father had completed the eighth grade. That was his education. My mother had, in fact, completed high school. But I was one of the first in the family to ever go to college. And so, um, you know, it was – I, it wasn't even it wasn't even a thought part of the thought process so uh, once I got to the Naval Academy and you know thought back to Bob Johnson and, uh, and and that kind of experience and saw that there was a possibility of doing this then my energies and efforts turned uh, turned towards uh, naval aviation
0: and it must have been st- I mean that's always been ultra competitive at mm-hmm. the Academy mm-hmm. And I know we had a, another pilot on Dave Burke And he was talking about how each step of the way he kind of looked around and, and said I think I can actually do this <laughs> You know it's kind of the same thing I, you look around and say I think I can get the best grades or I think I can get in yeah. this position mm-hmm. at some point you must have said mm, I think I can I think I can do this
1: There, there was as a matter of fact, and it's a great revelation you know when you, you finally uh, talk to yourself into accepting the fact that you do have the talent to do this, um, and, and until that point, you y- y- you don't really try as hard, I guess.
0: And uh, while you're at the academy, also, you is this when you got involved with Anne for the first time? Is that at the at the Naval Academy?
1: Anne was my high school sweetheart. Oh, okay. Yeah, we played the French horn in the band together.
0: <laughs> Those girls with the French horns. You yeah, gotta watch yeah, out for yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, she was uh she is a beauty and uh was a beauty and she showed up at our school but was um she 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 came she she came into our little uh, town in Kansas uh, from Indiana and uh, she had a boyfriend in Indiana uh mm-hmm. she wasn't telling me about you know for the first several Charlie
0: don't care about that boyfriend
1: <laughs> you no know, and his name is Bart and they called him Black Bart <laughs> so so Bart was-um-" And and uh, she wouldn't kiss me, you know? I mean, uh, uh, we dated for months, and she, the girl wouldn't kiss me. Dang. Uh, yeah, dang. You know, what I mean, it's, it, it's tough. I mean, uh, I mean,
0: it's the most reaction I've ever seen out of Echo, by the way, <laughs> I mean, on the podcast. I think
1: he's been you there. You just heard yeah, him.
0: Yeah, yeah. He had some bad memories on that one. <laughs> yeah. Finally, yeah. we're getting some Echo flashbacks.
1: It's <laughs> hard, Bill. It's hard. <laughs> Maybe we should talk about your story. Oh, man. Some other time. All kinds of kissing denials going on over there with Echo Charlie. <laughs> so uh, finally, I think it was Thanksgiving. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, 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 it was. It was right at Thanksgiving, and, and I intercepted a, a letter that she had gotten from Bart. And wait a uh, second,
0: how do you intercept a letter well, <laughs> well, I without yeah, breaking yeah, yeah. an
1: entry? <laughs> <laughs> No, it it was all above board, but uh, but so we'll leave
0: it at that. I guess I guess we're going to leave that one where it is.
1: Okay. I confronted her, you know, Uh this guy Bart. Oh no. She said, no, we're serious and we're going to get married someday. In fact, he's coming to Kansas for Christmas. I said, I'll make a deal with you. Um, I said, I don't think he's coming for Christmas. And so if he comes, I'll back off and you don't have to worry about me trying to kiss you anymore. But if he doesn't come, then you and I go steady, <laughs> huh? Well, he didn't come, yeah, and so I that that started a, a wonderful relationship. We uh, then went steady in high school. Of course, then I go off to the Naval Academy, fur piece from Kansas, and um, and she went to the University of Kansas uh, for her first year there. And, but we continued to communicate and, and I would, well, I saw her at Christmas time when I came home and then she decided to move to Washington DC to work for a senator out there. And, uh, so she spent the next three years, the last three years at Naval Academy. Uh, there close enough mm-hmm. so that we could you know continue to see each other. So it was, um, it was one of those, uh, you know, one and only kind of a thing because I didn't really date a whole lot in the high school, and she was it mm-hmm. for sure.
0: So then you guys got married. Did you? Did you wait until you graduated from the naval academy? Or did yes. You get
1: married yeah. Right? You, no, you can't. Uh, you can't get married while you're at the, the naval academy. At least you're not supposed to. A couple of guys did, mm-hmm. but uh, <clears throat> I didn't. And so the day after I graduated from the naval academy, uh, we were we were married. And my six buddies held up their swords. Well, one was a Marine. And so uh, he held up his saber as we came down from the chapel through the uh, arch of swords. And it was a beautiful day and a beautiful wedding. And from there, we went immediately to flight training.
0: Did you – so when did you find out you were getting picked up for flight training? Well, uh,
1: our senior, senior – yeah, the last, uh, last part of our senior year, you could apply. And, uh, and then you go through all of the hoops that, uh, that you go through to try to qualify for naval aviation. <clears throat> so I found out probably a month or six weeks before I graduated that that was going to be my, my, my tour.
0: Did you graduate in 64? Yes. So when you graduated, did you guys were you guys thinking Vietnam already? No. Or was it just too early and there, there was limited operations, so it wasn't really something that you guys were thinking about front of mind?
1: I don't remember ever hearing the word Vietnam while I was at the Naval Academy. Wow. Yeah.
0: So you rolled to flight school, just thinking, "Hey, we're gonna fly around. We're gonna go do regular deployments," which you'd heard about, but you weren't thinking about Vietnam.
1: Yep. So That's at what
0: point was that in flight school when you first started thinking to yourself? Yes. Hey, we got guys over here dropping bombs.
1: Yeah. Well, Ev Alvarez, Alvarez was shot down the the the, the first uh, POW to be shot down uh, in August 1964. Okay. So. It became a reality that while I was in flight training, another, another naval aviator was in prison in Vietnam. Hmm. Now uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't understand the politics. I didn't question the politics of it at all. Uh, I just did the best I could in flight training and, uh, and and enjoyed it. You know, I mean, it's 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 a kick.
0: Did you guys? Did your did your attitudes shift at all so for for my generation when all of a sudden September 11th happened It was like it was like a paradigm shift in everyone's mentality that that day. It was such a clear Clear demonstration and we all knew that we were going to war and that was an immediate attitude shift did you guys start to have a shift in attitude or was it so because the way Vietnam escalated more slowly? Was it more of a, a slow escalation in your minds as well?
1: No, it was very slow um, you know, the the old story of, uh, of The of the frog in the in the pot of boiling water, right. you know, he jumps out in a hurry but but no it was uh, it just warmed up very slowly for us and um I didn't even, as I went through fight training, you know, I mean, I learned to drop bombs and shoot guns and all that stuff, and it was, it, it was uh, challenging and uh, it was exciting, but I, I didn't see the reality of it. I didn't really picture myself as being in combat. Um, and so, of course, when I got my wings, and then was assigned the F four Phantom, which at the time was the hottest airplane in the world. I mean, we had the time to climb records and the speed records and it's a, it's a twice the speed of sound airplane. And it was felt very fortunate to, uh, to have uh, been assigned that airplane. And so I came out here to San Diego to, uh, to fly.
0: And you were talking about in your book, you'd done a midshipman tour where a a Phantom went down, both pilots killed and, and then you got assigned the, the Phantom. I did. did. that give you any reservations at all?
1: Uh, I don't remember being afraid of the airplane, uh, but I certainly gave it a lot of respect, and especially around the ship, uh, because that's, uh, you know, th- I, I saw this thing go down. At the Naval Academy in the summertime, you get exposed to the possible billets that you might have in the future. So we go play marine for a while and we go to submarines for a while and and we go aboard ships uh, to to be uh line officers for a while and we go to, uh, to to pensacola and so i got a little touch of it there of actually being in airplanes and then my senior <clears throat> my senior cruise between my junior and senior year i went aboard the the constellation the aircraft carrier constellation and uh and we were out of uh, Sasebo, japan And I'm watching flight ops from the bridge and, you know, I'm looking down at at this, uh, at the airplanes uh, launching and recovering on this aircraft carrier. And a phantom came in and actually broke the wire. The pilot did okay, but he broke. He, he picked up the wire, and the wire snapped. This cable that traps an airplane is two and a half inches in uh, in diameter. It's a very thick steel wire round cable. I mean, it's really really strong because it has to stop this thirty-five thousand pound airplane going down to shoot at one hundred and seventy miles an hour. So. But uh, for whatever reason, the cable broke. Okay. The, the cable snapped around and it cut off the legs of three different guys who were on the deck. Okay. And it was so fast that I couldn't even, see, I couldn't even see it. My eyes couldn't even follow this cable because there was just, I mean, there's so much pressure, so, so much um, energy involved. And then the airplane, the F4 was slowed down to the point where the guy couldn't get it back in the air. And so it just dribbled off the bow of the aircraft carrier and into the water. Well, uh, of course, then I, then I turned my uh, view to the stern of the ship to see if I could see what had happened. Well, the, the few seconds that it took from when it settled in the water until I could see out the, the, the back of the, of the ship, it was gone. There was no debris, there was no oil, there was nothing in the water behind this ship after this airplane had gone down so it was a shock to me of course um but you know i think i started out with this mentality that it's always going to happen to somebody else you know never me and uh, and that i'm you know i'm whatever happened i'm going to do it better and um and i think that's well you you know this better than i you have to kind of have that mentality in combat. You can't go in thinking you're going to get killed. Yeah. And so, um, so I, I wasn't reluctant to fly the F four, but I gave it, uh, I, I think, uh, respect.
0: So you get that, and you come out. You're stationed in San Diego. Is that was that San Diego, right, for when you when you deployed for the first time?
1: Miramar Naval Air Station. Yeah, and that's where I helped start Top Gun. That was kind of an interesting experience as well. There was, a, <clears throat> there was a, a a pool of students to fly the F-4 Phantom. And I showed up here when they had about a six-month waiting list for me to fly this airplane. Well, six months was a long time, you know, for a 23-year-old kid. And uh, I wanted to get in the air. So a buddy of mine, Paul Kruke, and I had gotten our wings at the same time and been assigned the F-4 Phantom. And we came out here and so we were both gonna have to wait for six months to fly this airplane. So we wandered down the flight line at Miramar and found the instrument training squadron was flying the same airplane that we had flown in in flight training, the old F-9 Cougar, a a bent wing airplane. It's a a jet, but it's light and slow and kind of stodgy. It's It's a Korean war airplane and And they were they were using it in flight training to teach instruments and the way they did this the the instructor would sit in the front seat, and the student sit in the back seat and they had a um, a, a bag <laughs> that that covered all the windows covered covered you up. All you could see was the instrument panel you're under this bag and so um, and so we signed on to fly this airplane for test hops and check rides and this kind of stuff just to fly, just to stay in the air because we were already qualified the airplane. Well, Kruke and I would save a little bit of gas, okay, each time we'd fly these students around. At the end of the hop, we would lurk off the, the coast of San Diego and wait for the Phantoms to come out. Mm. <laughs> And, uh, so we, you know, we, these guys would come off the runway at Miramar and they were heavy, you know, and they were stodgy and they were slow as they came off and they'd get about, uh, four or five miles out in the Pacific and we would pounce on these guys. (laughs) And, uh, it was all kinds of fun because we were lighter and could turn quicker than the Phantoms. And we were a a smaller, we had a better wing load than they did. And so we could turn inside these guys. Of course, they were much, much faster. We were not supersonic, and they were. And so they could get away from us in a, in a heartbeat if they wanted to. But uh, we, we started this air combat maneuvering with these guys. Well, that went on for, I don't know, a couple of months. Until one day, Krooky and I, I mean, we played the role. We had white scarves, you know, and Snoopy goggles <laughs> and all works. And one day we came back. <laughs> And to the instrument squadron and checked in our airplanes back in and, uh, and there was <laughs> a sign on the bullet board, Plum crooky, report to the F-4 commanding officer
2: immediately. <laughs>
1: uh, we were in trouble. <laughs> so two, two, two guys in their sweaty flight suits uh, knock on the door of the commanding officer of the Phantom Squadron. I'll never forget this scene. <clears throat> the, uh, they got come in and we open the door. This guy sits at a long desk. Okay. And, uh, and, and he's got glasses and of course he's an old, old guy. We were 23. He, so, you know, he was probably 30, but he was oldest the old, guy old, you've kid. ever talked oldest to. In your right life. Yeah. <laughs> and so he's sitting there talks over the top of his glasses. He's in a sweaty flight suit also, which should have been our first indication. <laughs> he said, you, the two, you, the two guys out there in the F9s hassling my fighter pilots. Um, yes, sir. We were, Um, Did you follow a phantom through an entire loop? Uh, Yes, sir. In fact, we did. He said, did you have your gun sights on that phantom the entire time? Uh, Yes, sir, we did. He said, do you know who was in that phantom? (laughs) He said, I was. He said, I just came back from Vietnam. Our kill ratio over there is terrible. They're eating our lunch. We need to learn how to fight this airplane. See the F four was designed during the Cold War as a supersonic interceptor. I was never called a fighter pilot. And in fact I trained in a spacesuit so I could go above fifty thousand feet. You know, off the aircraft carrier, climb to eighty thousand feet, shoot down the Russian bombers and you know, at forty five degree angle of bank turn, return to the aircraft carrier. That was my job. I wasn't supposed to be out there hassling because because it was the Cold War. We did not expect to have a a Korean War World War two type uh f- f- hassle a fighter pilot well, of course Vietnam came around and suddenly you know they're they're flying these older airplanes that were eating our lunch so the c o looked at us and he said you want you want fight with me tomorrow? Uh, well, yes, sir, that'd be fun <laughs> so for the next two or three months, Paul Kruke and I with our white scarves and our Snoopy goggles. <laughs> we'd get an F. We had to start about an hour ahead of time, you know, just because they were so fast. But we'd get out to sea, we'd go out to 40 miles out to sea and turn around and here they come. And we'd have these two-on-two engagements. And, and that became a syllabus within the replacement air group of the F4s that eventually became the Top Gun School. That's awesome. Yeah, it was, it was the start of uh, of retraining well and it was it was very successful we turned our kill ratio around by teaching pilots how to fight this F4 Phantom
0: yeah I mean, clearly that's a without training to fight how are you gonna know how to fight that's right and you gotta you gotta be that's outstanding for the for the commanding officer of that squadron to say you oh, know yeah. what instead of being instead of being <laughs> mad that you were doing it instead he's humble yeah. and says you know what we need to get better at this yeah let's 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 keep training yep that's awesome, and you eventually do get your time in the F four Phantom. You learn how to fly that, and now it's time to go on deployment. You're going on deployment now, N- November fifth, nineteen sixty six. You kiss Anne goodbye, and you go on deployment on the on the Kitty Hawk. It, now, was, it was her birthday. Oh, that's a great birthday present, oh, yeah. sir. Oh, All yeah. right, very nice of you. That's like <laughs> yeah. my first daughter. My first daughter was born actual birthday, like actual birthday. Right. Yeah, I went on deployment the next day. Oh, Everyone was really happy with me on that one <laughs> when now when you were Going through the flight training and you were getting ready to deploy now. Were you thinking about Vietnam at all? I mean you must have been getting feedback I mean you got feedback oh, yeah. from the commanding officer So oh, now yeah. your focus had shifted somewhat
1: yeah, It certainly had and the squadron that I joined was just coming back from Vietnam oh. and they'd had quite a few casualties and uh, And so they were talking about it, you know, the guys were the guys were were giving us instruction on how to work. The, another thing about the Phantom was that we had uh, we had no indication when a missile was in the air uh, because we were faster than the missile for the most part, or higher than the missile. And so one of the things the guys <clears throat> the guys told me the, the fellows coming back from Vietnam said, "Go down to Radio Shack and buy yourself a fuzzbuster." You know,
0: oh, like uh, yeah. like police detector, yeah, yeah, Maybe radar detector,
1: yeah, the old fuzzbuster, yeah. yeah. It's uh, he said because the uh, Russian-built SAM surface-to-air missiles are on the same frequency as the California Highway Patrol. <laughs> 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 true, true story, uh, and so we have found that if you, because we have no indication in, in the airplane when a missile is in the air and so i did uh, I, 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 I not a radio shack by myself a fuzzbuster, and uh it had a little suction cup and you look the suction cup and you put it on the windscreen <laughs> of this of this phantom and, and you run a little white wire you know down underneath your uh, g-suit and your sor- torso harness and under your oxygen mask and and finally into your ear you know you get your, your little earbud in there <clears throat> and so here I am flying this $20 million airplane being protected by a $29 Fuzz Buster. <laughs> <laughs> so it worked. But uh, the problem was that there was no uh, direction capability. You right. couldn't tell where it was coming from. And so, <laughs> you know. That's you, almost worse psychologically. Well, you you, know, you psychologically, just know it's coming. Absolutely. You heard the warble. And, boy, you know, you started to turn and jink. And, you know, your, your head went on a swivel trying to figure out where this uh, this missile is. <laughs>
0: you but you get overseas and you're you're flying you start flying missions you're doing you're doing mostly strike missions is that primarily what you're doing taking out targets in in north vietnam
1: the f4 of course again was considered was uh, configured and, and and built from the keel up as a uh, as an air to air combat machine all right the uh, powers that be decided hey there's an airplane we can hang a bomb on it they put on an extra, I believe, four hard points on the bottom of this airplane, maybe five, can't remember. So that we could carry bombs on this fighter airplane. Well we were supposed to be, you know, interceptors. We weren't supposed to be carrying bombs around, but we found out that sure enough, <laughs> this big old airplane was a pretty good platform for, for dropping bombs. And so we could carry, you know, we could carry 13,000 pounds of bombs into the target which was a pretty good load. You know, we could also support you know, guys like you on the ground that, uh, with all kinds of various uh, kinds of weaponry. Um, and so what happened was we had a sister squadron on the aircraft carrier. So for a month line period, we would be fighters for two weeks and then we would, uh, we would, we would reconfigure our airplane to be bombers. And we'd be bombers for two weeks. And we would go back to fighters and then back to bombers. <clears throat> so to answer your question, half the time over there I was dropping bombs. And half the time I was uh, I was uh, doing the air-to-air mission.
0: And the air-to-air mission primarily you would be doing combat air patrols to support the other elements that were flying in with bombs. And you'd be protecting in case any MiG showed up.
1: Exactly. Yeah, it was a CAP, a CAP, yeah. Combat Air Patrol.
0: So you're pretty much almost done with deployment We're we're talking you you spend you did what 74 missions at this point you've been there for five or coming up on six months and on the 19th of May 1967 you get a phone call and you guys get like a a strike mission comes in that you are supposed to execute
1: it was a big deal uh and it was called an alpha strike an alpha strike was the top priority and we knew that it would be a lot of airplanes in the air and we'd have some pretty important targets to hit and it was sanctioned uh straight from the pentagon it was jcs stuff uh and um which of course is one of the problems in that war was that most of our instruction came from the guys uh back in the puzzle palace Hmm. and uh it's you know they wouldn't they wouldn't let us decide targets or, or altitudes or anything else. Uh, it, it was pretty well, well planned by the time we got the go. And I got a call, at I suppose, three in the morning, something like that, uh, saying that uh, I was to schedule this flight. I was a schedules officer for the, prop, for the squadron. And so I was the guy that figured out who went on what strikes and <clears throat> who went with whom and, and the airplanes that they had. And so, so I got up early to start planning this strike uh, with the airplanes and the pilots and the the backseaters, our radar inter- intercept officers, our, our co-pilots, um, and, and and so I did. Then we went to the briefing room and got about an hour brief on this these targets. I later found out that the reason for the whole thing, the reason why we were doing an alpha strike on the nineteenth of May, was it was the birthday of their president Ho Chi Minh. Mm. And uh, again, Happy birthday, what you mean? Yeah, exactly. The brilliance of uh, you know of our our our, our um, greats was that we would catch them in celebration of their of the big day uh, because they it was like our president's day. Uh, right. You know, they, they had picnics and that kind of stuff, and so we were going to catch them with their pants down. Well. <clears throat> As most things that happened in Vietnam, they knew we were coming for whatever reason. And uh, that day, there were eight F-4 Phantom shot down. But I'll never forget the beginning of it because um, you know, I took off and a and rendezvous with a tanker and took on an extra 3,000 pounds of fuel and then joined uh, this, the, the squadron. And it was, in fact, a CAP mission. It was a combat air patrol. I was not carrying bombs. So we had four of us on one side of the strike group and four of the other. And uh, just to look because it was it was three aircraft carriers and five air force bases. All we were just throwing everything we had at the enemy that day. It was it was an amazing armada and I could see from one horizon to the other these airplanes and, uh, and I remember feeling really proud, you know. Man, you know, just to be a part of this, doing something that very few people in the world would ever do. Um, and flying this airplane, um, at age 24. And, uh, so that, that was how it all began on the 19th of May.
0: Uh, one of the things that we were talking about just before we, we hit record was the kind of the, the sense of humor that you have in the military and, and what that's like. And I, one of the by the way, I haven't even mentioned that I'm referring to a book that you wrote called I'm no hero by Charlie Plum And that'll be that's available on Amazon You can get it through. It'll be a link on the website, but Awesome yeah, book
1: actually better on my website because I, I, I sign everyone that uh, that goes out so my website Charlieplum.com, Plum Okay, sell it, so.
0: well there you go even better um, Going to the book here you guys are getting re- before you launch you're getting ready to launch kind of getting ready for the briefing And here we go The Pilots of the fighter planes gathered in their own briefing room and read from a television screen and teletype the weather information and the Position of the ship we reviewed once again the switches We would have to throw and I coordinated with the maintenance officer the weapons. We would need the volume of the fuel, etc Serious thoughts were in the back of all our minds, but outwardly our mood was light we laughed and joked drank coffee and smoked my regular Rio, which is the radar intercept officer, is the backseater because the the F4 Phantom has two people, was up to his old habit of manipulating his slide rule. Being a self-styled math wizard, he again pinpointed his likelihood of getting bagged or shot down. This was based on some speculative formula he had found somewhere. Today, friends, he proclaimed, "My bag factor is 0.019376." And then you replied to him then save me a room at the Hanoi Hilton <laughs> Again, I'm glad you're still laughing about that sir uh, the rest of you as we go through this book will see the true irony in that <laughs> joke
1: uh,
0: You know back to the book here we left our ready room and entered the central briefing room where all the pilots, RIOs, and standby crews scrutinized their master plan, which included maps and photographs of the targets and intelligence reports of enemies fire capability. After our central briefing, we returned to our ready room, meditated last minute instructions, and put on our flight gear. Altogether, these briefings took as long and sometimes longer than the mission itself. I looked up at the screen, pilots, man your aircraft. We gave each other, we slapped each other on the back, exchange a customary give them hell dialogue and patted the posterior of our good luck girl hanging on the door it was time to go topside you guys are now getting ready to take off and again just some of this this humor back to the book engine run-up is good takeoff checklist is complete I'm ready to go Gary you ready yeah I'm ready okay I mocked this is your captain speaking Welcome to Flight 403 to Hanoi, North Vietnam. We'll be flying at an altitude of 11 grand, and we have a high ceiling. Make sure your seatbelt is fastened. No smoking, please. <laughs> 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 so that's the attitude going out. And legitimately, you're, this is your 75th mission. You've flown 74. You're feeling pretty comfortable. I mean, even though, of course, you got thoughts in the back of your mind, but you're feeling pretty comfortable about how you do your job and what you get done.
1: I am feeling bulletproof. I wasn't
0: gonna go that far, but let's just go there because <laughs> I, I know that feeling too. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. The as you push in back to the book, all this coordination. So it's what you just talked about this massive effort going forward, dozens and dozens of aircraft. All of this coordination of men and machinery during the refueling was done in complete silence we called it zip-lip. although enemy radar would have already detected us we were careful not to give radio spooks any additional information it was gratifying to experience such close rapport with my air wing I knew and they knew what each was doing in this intricate maneuver yet not a word had to be spoken and that's I've, I've actually talked about that on here when we would train And when I was running training for for the seals I would tell them hey you're not allowed to talk during this training mission you can't say one word to each other and it was amazing after you do that a couple times how much better people get because they're reading they're reacting they're anticipating what other people are gonna do and you guys are just so far ahead at this point five and a half months into deployment it's you guys are doing this whole thing without saying a word to each other
1: it was amazing
0: yeah I, I think that's one of the one of the incredible things about the military is, even though you're just a little piece of that big m- machine, this big powerful machine, it's 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 pretty awesome to mm-hmm. experience when you when that stuff's going on. And you kind of talked about what what you were doing. You were positioned on the flanks, anticipating MIGs. How often are you guys seeing MIGs over there?
1: Not uh, not often. I had seen MIGs probably four or five times up to that point, and uh, so they. Uh, they they really were they were they were really good about not showing up until they knew that they could kill something. You mm-hmm. so, uh, know, of course they were they had the advantage they had the home field advantage, and so they could wait on their bases until we came to them, and then they would launch. So if you didn't get close to a MIG base, you probably weren't going to see one. Mm-hmm. They were they had a very short range, uh, and and uh, they didn't stay in the air very long, and so uh, we didn't see them very often.
0: And on this one, you get a call though. You hear that they, they, they gave you a call for T.Here's Migs. What is it? Migs twenty, twenty West, and you start to get a little aggressive. Start leaning out that way a little bit, yep, right? Yep, yep. <laughs> and the and the the uh, f- uh, flight commander tightened you up and said, "Hey, Plum, get back over in formation."
1: Yep. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, my uh, my best buddy there, uh, Denny Wisely, had already shot down two airplanes. Uh, by that time, and he shot down another one after I was shot down, uh, and so he it, and you know, I mean, that's what it, every fighter pilot wants to, you know, to have a Mig to his credit. And I saw this opportunity, you know, five days to go, you know, this is this is my this is my day, you know, this is Charlie Plum Day. <laughs> <laughs> so I started to ease out of the squadron so that I would be the first to go after this Mig.
0: And uh, Charlie Plum's gonna get his. (laughs)
1: Uh uh That's what happens. (laughs) But no, that that that, that's how it began.
0: And and they tighten you back up, so you fall back into formation. And now there's a Sam. Is there a Sam call? Did you pick it up on the on the fuzzbuster?
1: I did, but there were a lot of them in the air, and and uh, and and so that thing was warbling all the time. Um. They were, they, were, they were salvoing their SAMs that day. They just, they just shoot a bunch of them off at the same time. And so every time they shot one off and every time their radar would scan me, I would get to Fuzzbuster. But we also had, you know, we had the, uh, um, the, the big radar airplanes in the sky right. at the same time. And, and, and they would call uh, us. And, and that's how I got that call, uh, that 20-mile-away call was uh, was was from our, our, our elect- electronic folks that were flying well above us with the radar
0: so you know that there's sam surf air missiles up there and here we go back to the book gary that's your that's your rio sitting behind right. you in the plane right. you say gary do you see it and he says i don't see a thing charlie we had both seen sam's before they resembled Flying white telephone poles with huge 4th of July sparklers spraying silvery-orange glows from their tails If we saw them in time we could dodge the missiles by letting them close in at the last second Pulling the plane into a high G barrel roll Six G's or so and letting the poles pass harmlessly underneath because of its design the missile could not follow us without cracking in two But we didn't see it boom I felt a thump in the empennage, the aft section of the airplane. Red instrument lights jumped across the panel, indicating that I had two engines on fire. That wasn't good. This plane only had two engines. I yanked the throttles back to idle, and the bird seemed to come to an immediate halt in midair. Charlie, we're hit! How bad is it? She's still flying. Then the aircraft started to roll, and while I madly scanned the instruments, I looked up and found. That the F4 had suddenly overturned. Ground was where the was where there should have been sky, and the nose was heading downward, ripping air at 500 knots. The altimeter needle collapsed to 4,000, then 3,500, then 3,000. We had to get out, but being inverted, we would be rocketed by the ejection seat right into the rice paddies. I had to roll the plane upright. I tried the stick; it was frozen. The only manual control was the rudder pedal, not normally used to roll an aircraft. I stepped on it as hard as I could, adrenaline surging through my veins. The plane shuddered once and again. Slowly, it began to right itself. Rearview mirrors reflected a screaming fireball 12,000 pounds of flaming gasoline and 30,000 pounds of fissionable aircraft. You want to eject? No, wait a minute, I shouted back. The plane struggled, then the sky was where it should be. Gary, let's go. I jerked my face curtain to eject. The rocket slammed me out of the aircraft. I tumbled a couple times and the chute caught, just as advertised. All kinds of debris filled the air around me as wadding from the shells whistled by. Son of a gun, they've bagged my airplane. Now they're after me. I at the concussions from the exploding shells sonic booms battering my eardrums rockets of heavy smoke clouded the sky Gary and I had ejected ejected so near the ground however that enemy guns could train on us for only a short time I checked my parachute canopy it looked good torn in only a couple of places I thought of escape but where looking away I saw my buddies and their aircraft blending into the horizon below my landing zone was nothing but barren rice paddies down to my left a huge cloud of black smoke billowed at the outskirts of a peasant hamlet punctuating a row of four or five huts my plane had it wiped out a family if so the villagers would certainly be unhappy I wasn't happy either I hadn't intended that to happen I later learned that the plan the plane had impacted just beyond the last shack on the road There was precious little time before I could touch down, before I would touch down, and I had much to be done. I grabbed my two way radio and tried to contact Gary, but I received no answer. Then I called my skipper Linfield lead, Linfield lead. This is Linfield 2. We've got two good shoots. We're going to be all right. Request no SAR effort. Sara's search-and-rescue for those of you that don't know and I when I read that part right there I stopped in my tracks because here you are you're shot down you're in a parachute you're gonna obviously be landing in these rice paddies surrounded by enemy and you had the wherewithal to understand that if you requested for search-and-rescue to come and get you it was just gonna get more people killed
1: yeah Uh, And that had happened before Uh, I'd seen, I had seen that happen and uh, we were so far behind enemy lines. I mean, it it was impossible. Uh, A jolly green was the was a call sign for the helicopter that would come get us off the aircraft carrier. And they would have to go through uh, probably um, 75 or a hundred miles of enemy territory before they ever got to me. And, uh, and, and I was in such a populated area that I could see that they were that I was going to be captured immediately and so to get those guys to put them in harm's way was uh, was kind of silly so that's why I did that
0: when you know I've experienced a couple times in combat where things slow down mm-hmm. and the time starts to to really be different than it normally is and they say it's cuz you get this big adrenaline dump and all of your sensors all your your perception awakens to such a high point that things actually slow down. Did you experience any of that when you were once that Sam missile hit
1: I did? Yes. Uh, It was almost like slow motion. And I, you know, I, I I remember thinking this is unreal. I, I, I've never had this uh, happen to me before, but it was almost like I was in a, it was in a movie and everything was slowing down in my life. Um, and, uh, and, and I, you know, I, I tried to sense every possible thing because, of course, I'm thinking escape now, trying to get, get out of here in some way. And so I'm trying to memorize all the little roads I could see and all the little trees and all the little huts and where are they and where am I, that situ, situational awareness.
0: How far from the water, or the ocean were you at this oh, point? Oh, I was
1: 75 miles. Oh, so no chance yeah, of that. No chance. We were on the outskirts of Hanoi, the capital city and uh and and that was the bad news good news um the bad news was that i was going to be captured immediately there was no chance whatsoever i mean they were shooting at me from the ground while i came down uh the good news was i didn't have to go very far to the to a formalized prison camp right. like a lot of the guys did you know you had bill reader on this yeah on your podcast and he was dragged for i don't know weeks um and uh because he was He was captured in South Vietnam, the guys that were in Laos or Cambodia uh, who were brought to our prison camps were all just really torn up, not just because of, um, of of the enemy, uh, but just because of the rigors of the travel. So,
0: and you're going to, you're going to talk about this. You talk about it in the book, but you know, just to kind of point out the fact that whatever Two minutes earlier you were part of this giant powerful force with a multi million dollar you know aircraft under your command as a 24 year old as part of this group that of of many many multi million dollar with this huge destructive power launching off of these ships and and airfields uh, and to go from having all that to now you're under a parachute and you're about to have all of that
1: just absolutely taken away it was a major transition in my life. <laughs> but I you know, unlike unlike someone who's diagnosed with cancer, right, you know, or unlike someone who who just lost a job or uh just lost a child or just had a car accident. I mean, that's you know, th- there are similarities in normal civilian life I think that can be just as impactive as being blown out of the sky.
0: Yeah. You're Floating down to earth, and I'm going back to the book then I bowed my head. Well Lord here. I am I'm really in a bind now, and I need some help Give me strength and give and strength. I Was surprised at how calm I was when I should have been panic stricken But there was too much to think about and do I couldn't let myself become irrational It would all be different now I tried to envision myself in this new world and prepare for it I had a lot going for me I was in good physical condition and I could probably withstand torture I didn't believe I would be killed because I was too much of a blue chip for the enemy which again for you to say you're, sh- you're shot down, you're about to land in enemy territory, and your statement is, I had a lot going for me. It's a positive <laughs> attitude, sir. It's a positive see, attitude.
1: See, that's your philosophy of saying good. <laughs> it is indeed. That's my notes right there. Yeah, good. I, wrote right there. I wrote good. I said, that's, yeah, I've thought this before.
0: So uh, you touch down. I plunged backward into the mud and water, trying to get my bearings. I took off my helmet and mask and crawled out, crawled without direction in the quagmire with slimy hands I tried to wipe mud from my eyes I saw that I was about 10 or 15 yards from an embankment I looked over to see that Gary touching down an adjacent paddy about 100 yards away had disappeared behind the eight-foot embankment a barefoot peasant wearing khaki shirts shorts and t-shirt ran at top speed down the path toward me grimacing with excitement and anger above his head he waved a double-edged axe with blades about eight inches long My instructors never documented that type of weapon I heard him scream hand up hand up I didn't understand what he meant and I kept working with my gear and shoot I had a 38 revolver strapped to my chest and it and as long as he stayed in the embankment I would not touch it it wasn't long however before 10 or 12 more peasants came rushing toward me yelling and waving their shovels and hoes now there was power in numbers and they charged out in the water after me I raised my hands away from my body they started ripping my g-suit found my survival knife and proceeded to cut away at the suit and the torso harness I tried to tell them to use the zippers and even attempted to show them how to do it but they knocked my hands away the more certain they were that I was harmless the meaner they became the shovel and hole blades flailed at my body to prove to me that I was their loathed captain captive Strangely the peasants failed to see my revolver probably because it too was covered with mud and the 38 rested in my holster At least three or four minutes before a peasant finally spotted it He yanked it out of the holster and sloshed a few steps away a Moment later he returned and screamed for special attention He fixed the barrel to my head. I could see that at least two of the chambers were empty I had always kept five of the six chambers loaded so I knew that he must have removed at least one of the cartridges there was little I could do as I felt the muddy barrel against my temple the peasant pulled the trigger click he guffawed and sneaked away wiping off his unexpected prize Your as far as your thoughts about being killed at that moment did you accept them did you were used to thinking he's not going to do it what's your attitude at that point
1: I never in the entire experience and never thought I was going to be killed and I didn't think so think so at that moment of course, I was very happy when I heard the click of that revolver. <laughs> but, uh, but it was it was actually very uh, encouraging to think that they were going to feign this uh, execution and not go through with it. Right, and uh, it was encouraging to me to, to think that, yeah, they were going to hammer me around and get me pretty bloody, but they probably weren't intentionally going to kill me. I guess I worried more about that. They would kill me accidentally, uh, right. than intentionally, but, and there were two or three times during the entire experience. One, one of them was while I was being tortured, uh, how, when I felt like I was losing it and I was close to death and they, they loosened the ropes. Uh, because they saw, I, I think, that I was getting pretty close to death. And so, uh, and that, you know, again, that was good. <laughs> because I thought, all right, uh, this is, hurts a lot, but it looks like they're not going to kill me. I may wish I was dead, but I don't think they're going to do it.
0: Now, you guys are blindfolded. They, they capture Gary as well. And they're, you're, you're blindfolded, but at this point they put this kind of marginal blindfold on you that's not working really well so you can actually see and again I'm gonna go to your um, go ahead and highlight your twisted sense of humor here (laughs) (laughs) so here we go Uh, you're in the back of an old Russian Jeep back to the book Gary was held captive in the Jeep ahead of mine at the instant I recognized Gary I started calling hysterically for a doctor to attend to his burned arms the guards restrained me violently screaming foreign but distinct warnings to attempt no more communication I did however shout one more thing I don't know why unless it was for morale I shouted out these people are a thousand years behind in blindfolds <laughs> <laughs> and it says later the POWs who were in nearby cells heard heard you screaming that and still laughed about it so uh, I'm glad you kept your sense of humor.
1: You know, sometimes I look back on that and think that I, uh, that I was in some form of shock, right? Be- because I mean, who would, uh, who would come up with that? You know? <laughs> who would, who would write this stuff? <laughs> and uh, they, they, br-
0: they bring you in. They pra- kind of parade you guys around, and you hear cameras clicking, and eventually you get put into new guy village and you get put into you know a torture basically a torture room so here you go back to the book several torture cells in the prison the green knobby room so-called because the walls and ceiling were covered with gobs of plaster the size of golf balls which looked somewhat like mud dauber nests the globs had a particular function acoustics to muffle human sound now you get through this day, sunset, I had difficulty in seeing what was beyond my cell. So I began reminiscing about the world of active life I had loved so much. Outside, my every minute had been filled. Outside, I had been king of the skies. Outside, I had been continually learning, doing, accomplishing. I had been proud, so very proud. And now I was tired. So tired, so perplexed, so confined, so very lonely. The trauma of overwhelming change caused my mind to reel with disorientation. I was afraid. I stared at the emptiness. Shadows crept up the walls, gradually becoming more pronounced. Curiously, a vague ghost like impression materialized. The image took the appearance of the master with arms outstretched a symbol it was strange yet something I felt I should expect I began to utter the first lines of the 23rd Psalm the Lord is my Shepherd I shall not want he maketh me to lie down in green pastures he leadeth me beside the still waters he restoreth my soul he leadeth me In the paths of righteousness for his name's sake I repeated it aloud several times not because of any deep religious drive but because it simply seemed the thing to do and then I prayed I considered making a deal with God but rejected the idea I made no big promises and asked for no miracles just strength Strength to endure the hardship and strength for my wife, Anne. It would be difficult for her, too. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that was certainly
1: where I was. An interesting point here is that in Colonel Reader's uh, podcast, uh, you found the same thing that he went to the twenty third psalm, mm-hmm. and uh, I, 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 and again it was just almost like, well, this is what I should do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I say there, there, there's
0: no atheists in foxholes, mm-hmm. and I guess there aren't any in the prison mm-hmm. camp. Although you do talk about some atheists in the prison camp.
1: I do, as a matter of fact, a yeah. of, couple of guys yeah. cons- consider themselves atheists and.
0: Yeah. And you know that you also talk about faith and one of the things that I, I will get to this but When you talk about faith, you're you, you talk about faith not just in God but faith in your country and The one that I think that regardless of what someone's religious beliefs are faith in yourself mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think all three of those or whichever one of those faiths where you find strength in mm-hmm. time like this lean on it
1: <laughs> Absolutely and, and, you know, faith in the team as well. And we had to have faith in each other. And, and that was awfully important to, you know, to be a part of a group like that that could trust one another.
0: How quickly did you realize that there was, that you were part of, I guess we'll get to it. But, I mean, when you first got, you're in this room, did you feel completely isolated at first and there's well, no one else here?
1: No, no, I knew that there were other prisoners okay. there. I, I could hear them. Uh, you know, some of them were being tortured as I was. I could hear the torture. I could um, you know I, I could peek out sometimes and see them walking by my cell So I knew there were other prisoners in the area and they just wouldn't let me They wouldn't let me talk to them
0: So the interrogation begins The torture begins we're going back to the book we read copy regulations you obey You live no trouble, okay? I did not respond first regulation you answer all question the way that the North Vietnamese justified torture was peculiar when they asked me questions and wanted military answers I was not tortured to answer questions but punished for disobeying camp regulations what what airplane you fly I'm sorry I can't tell you lamb and they were calling you lamb what airplane to answer this question was of course not in my rules I'm sorry I can't answer that the officer again reminded me about the punishment for disobeying camp rules okay you talk me or you talk steel to which you responded bring it on the two higher-ranking officials left the remaining officer with one word ordered the guards forward they brought it on the steel mentioned by the interrogator consisted of iron manacles shackles and a leg bar the shackles were cylindrical iron bars shaped like horseshoes but rounded at the end so that the five-foot leg bar could be slipped into them and locked the prisoner's ankles could then be forced through the openings and secured by the bar. The junior officer walked out. Guards blindfolded me, forced my wrists behind my back, and placed the open jaws of the manacles around them. These had obviously been intended for the more modest Vietnamese arms. They were so small that they had to be forced together just so the screw could be seated in the bottom of the threads. With what looked like a roller skate key a guard began to turn the screw my skin was pinched between the metal and quickly succumbed to the vice I screamed in agony surely the guards wouldn't get these things much tighter blood oozed down my hands and still the guard kept turning the key like powerful magnets the iron was finally set flush circulation stopped my hands burned grayish blue tingled and became numb a guard then wrapped the rope first around my left elbow and then around my right and drew my elbows together behind my back my shoulder muscles writhed and I feared that my sternum would separate I gasped for air and I was thrown abruptly to the floor shackles were jammed around my ankles and the leg bar was fastened and padlocked Electric wire similar to the kind that I had hidden underneath the table was brought forward. I Thought that the guards were going to use this to shock me but typical of the Vietnamese They didn't have anything else to use for rope and it torn the wire down from some light fixtures This became the apparatus to wrap me up It was first tied to the manacles then thrown over my shoulder and at last secured to the shackles around my ankles guards forced a bamboo pole under the wire and started rotating it so that the wire contracted bringing my wrists up high on my back and drawing my face completely to my ankles I was a human pretzel a teacup with arms for a handle and the rest of my distorted body for the bowl Circulation was impaired throughout my limbs making them extremely painful to the touch The guards apparently drugged exhibited wide and glassy eyes They maliciously kicked me in the sides the limbs the back and the head giggling and having a great time They picked me up a few feet from the floor and dropped me since I was on my side most of the time they especially enjoyed standing on my head symbolically victorious the rubber tire sandals tore at my ear my face a ready target for abuse was repeatedly subjected to fisticuffs and kicks I remember staring at the floor and seeing my tears drop into pools of blood coming from my nose the louder I screamed the more they flailed after about an hour the junior officer returned you talk now yes the guards loosened the wires and ropes blood rushed back into my veins with knifing pain what airplane you fly I hesitated a moment at the thought well they know the airplane I'm flying and it's so ridiculous to undergo such torture for information they already have the f4b That part right there. I mean, where you hesitate for a moment, and then you say to yourself, "Okay, these guys shot me down in an F four, which crashed into this paddy, and they know exactly what I was flying. This is not make sense for me to get this kind of abuse and torture for something that they already know." And when you came to that conclusion, how did, did you did you? was it pretty were you feeling comfortable with it in your mind when you came to conclusion look this is stupid
1: no I was really never comfortable at all in that I felt very guilty um, I was very I really I was very remorseful that I had not been as strong as I wanted to be and uh, and through the you know the, the first several months of that experience I uh, I, I I felt like um, I felt very guilty about having given up, you know, fighter pilots are not supposed to give up, you know, we we're, but mm-hmm. this, and the code of conduct, of course, right. name rank, serial number, date of birth. Um, I flew over this, the, the enemy thinking that I was strong enough and I was good enough, and, uh, and and suddenly I was thrust into this situation. And I even wondered, would I, would I ever be able to go back to my country, can I face my fellow fighter pilots that were stronger, you know, and tougher. And <clears throat> I found out that, that that feeling was across the board. Every, every POW that I ever ran into felt guilty. And some guys even considered suicide because they felt like they could, they could never live with the guilt of having given up. And it was it was quite a revelation to me when I finally uh, made contact with another prisoner and confessed to this guy. I remember my first contact and I said, I said, uh, I need to confess something to you. And when I tell you what I've done, you may not want to communicate with me. You, You may hate me. And if our roles were reversed, I would probably hate you if you did what I did. Because I assumed that I was the only one that ever gave in. Mm-hmm. And so he said – this is Bob Shoemaker. <clears throat> he said, what did you do, Plum? I said, well, I, I broke. Uh, I, I tried to be strong, but I, I wasn't. I broke. And his response and, – and we're, we're talking on, uh, on the end of a wire. We're tugging on a, a wire to communicate with each other with this secret code that, I had, that he had just taught me. He said, hell, everybody broke. He said, there's not a man in this camp that is as strong as he wanted to be. He said, so get over yourself, you know. And, it, and that, was a, that was a great revelation in my mind, you know, to know that I wasn't the only one that had given in.
0: As you, you continue this and— Again, I uh, you you might have felt like you broke at this point, but there's still some unbelievable spirit that you show. And I'm going back to the book around the courtyard in a nearby room my copilot copilot Gary Anderson was undergoing about the same treatment. As soon as I heard him exploding obscenities, I knew he was near. "Hey Gary, you all right? I called. The guards were immediately on, to- immediately on top." Kicking and striking Gary heard me and yelled back It was four years later that I came across a POW who had been in a cell close to ours at the time He said boy. That was one of the craziest things I ever heard you yelling. Hey, Gary. Are you all right? Bang crunch thud. fine How about you smack crash crack? <laughs> yeah Um, You eventually get they're gonna take you and, and kind of parade you in front of Vietnamese people and going back to the book the officer briefed me once more I was to walk with my head down until he gave me the command let people see face the guards removed the cuffs and I pumped my hands and twitched my shoulders to restore circulation the guards carefully directed me to the door removing the blindfold and warned me not to look around They then prodded me down the hallway, lined with photographers and journalists, a group composed of Orientals and a few Caucasians. With the officer at my side, I walked out of the building onto the patio where a battery of motion cameras started whirring. The officer shouted to me, let people see face. Slowly and deliberately, I looked up, staring blankly into space, bowed deeply to the cameras and lowered my head. I was uneasy about this entire charade feeling a combination of resentment and embarrassment at being featured as a sideshow attraction.
1: And what I didn't know at the time was it was Ho Chi Minh's birthday. And, uh, so that was part of the celebration, uh, was I was being presented to the president of their country as a birthday gift (laughs) popping out of a cake. (laughs) And, uh, and the good news was that that I was I was in the media that they were taking pictures of me mm-hmm. and so after a few months uh, my family saw those pictures right and uh, and so that was the good news about being shot down on the 19th of May
0: so that was uh, the first indication that people knew that you were actually okay right or you were alive maybe not okay That's a strong word didn't mean to say okay you were alive
1: the uh, the, the, the picture that, uh, was taken and, and transferred to my family has me with my eyes closed and my face was pretty well swollen. Mm-hmm. And my little brother thought that I was dead. He, he thought that was a picture of a dead man. And so, um, but, uh, but I think most people, you know, thought, yeah, no, he, he's alive. So
0: you actually get, how'd you get stabbed? Bayoneted so um, you were f- about to fall or something
1: uh, actually i was I was uh, being prodded to walk faster by these guys and i was I was hurting at the time. you know I was uh, injured from the from the ejection, and I wasn't able to walk very fast, and I was blindfolded as well. and so I hit a I hit a, a rut in the road, and these guards with their bayonet fixed behind me stabbed me in the in the thigh. And so that was in fact, that was the worst wound that I had and it festered for months Mm -hmm. because I had no medical care. Um, And um, but I I never really knew if it was intentional or if it was accidental. But that was uh, that was how I got that wound.
0: Now you get back in and they're going to give you they give you the rules for the first time that you're supposed to follow. And. The, the guy reads them to you and I'm just gonna I gotta read these rules because uh, I think they give a good indication as to what you were facing here we go back to the book you are the blackest criminal that this country has ever seen but due to the lenient humane policy of the Vietnamese people if you follow regulations you live in peace regulation number one criminals must give full and complete answers to questions asked by Vietnamese guard or officer number two criminals must make no noise in room number three criminals must keep room clean and neat and must not mark rooms so graciously given by Vietnamese people number four criminals must get up and go to bed at sound of gong number five criminals must get under bed when imperialist aggressor bomb and strafe our sovereign country number six criminals must say "bao Cao when they want ask anything number seven criminals must go only in area that guard orders when they go outside of room number eight criminals must bow to every Vietnamese guards officers and people number nine criminals must not bring anything into room from outside number ten criminals must not communicate with or look at other criminals in any other room or outside with minor variations these were the rules for the next six years big one was the communication they didn't want you guys talking to each
1: other no they didn't and uh, they did all that they possibly could do to keep us from communicating but we got very clever and we uh, had a lot of ways to communicate
0: (laughs) now you spend some time in solitary confinement and here we go back to book during this period of solitary confinement I had much time to think from the start I established a definite schedule for personal reflection and appraisal this included a two-hour worship service in the morning and a similar one in the evening I spent much time praying talking informally with God and recalling as many scriptures verses and Bible stories as I could I also revived the words and tunes to songs from a Tennessee Ernie Ford album that I'd enjoyed on the Kitty Hawk once in a while I would start humming too loudly and a guard would bang his rifle against the door I spent more and more time thinking about intangibles the purpose for living ethics the supernatural faith pride because the tangibles which I had identified with were no longer present My aircraft, my ship, my personal possessions. This was the onset of a thorough re-examination of my life. Often these intricate thought processes ended in slumber.
1: One of the the interesting uh, things that are really most difficult to understand is how we had nothing going on. Um, You know, I mean, the, the, the average American has hundreds of thousands of inputs every day, colors and sounds and smells and touch and all these things. Uh, and when you're in a little prison cell, especially if you're in solitary confinement, you know, you might, you might hear a bird, you know, and then that's delightful. That's a big deal, you know, to hear a bird <laughs> and nothing else. So, uh, again, the good news and the bad news is your mind goes internal. And you start. You have to. You have to create things uh, on your own. And so you think about these intangible things, and you go back through your life, and and uh, and 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 you think about the things that sustain life and why we are here, because there's nothing else to do.
0: Did you put some kind of structure around mm-hmm. your thoughts? It seems like you people might have a tendency just to let their mind wander, and maybe it wanders into places they don't want it to wander into.
1: No, there was a lot of structure to it. And uh, in fact, one of the things I did was to go back through my life to the very first memory that I ever had at three years old in Lecompton, Kansas, when my grandmother came through and wanted everybody to, to go with her. Well, and I remember that date. And then I went from that to the day that I was shot down. And tried to remember every book I'd ever read, every friend I'd ever met, every girl I'd ever dated, every uh, teacher, books, movies, uh, experiences, and and it took me about, as I recall, maybe three months working pretty hard on on that uh, you know, that total autobiography in my mind, and after that, then I would. Continue to go back through those individual days and try to remember something else. You know, a different color that I'd forgotten, or a different person that was in the room. And whenever I would, when I would discover something that I hadn't discovered the first three months, it was like it was like meeting an old friend. I could think about that one person or that one book or whatever you know for an entire day. And so it was just it was a way of of uh, of using that time. And making the time go by uh, by working our minds.
0: Did you somehow catalog the days in your mind?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. It was a it was a chronology. It was, uh, and and most everybody did that. And a lot of guys did it much better than I. They could tell you, you know, what was going on um, on this day last year and the year before and the year before. They you know, they they uh, they could remember everything. Uh, had it, had it all packed away. But yes, it was very well categorized. <sighs> you
0: finally get some pair of pants, a couple pairs of pants, a couple shirts, some underwear, undershirt, toothbrush, and some soap. And you. Are gonna use it for the first time I stripped and with my little drinking cup doused myself with water lathered with my new bar of soap and rinsed shedding a two-week layer of grime and sweat then I shaved using a double-edged razor which had no handle at last I was clean no itchy beard no reeking body I put on my new clothes and wondered what impressions I would now make on the newly captured POWs dressed in fresh habiliment, I experienced a sublime physical and mental catharsis even the pain of my wounds seemed to wash away with the filth 15 minutes later I was back in my cell re-inspired to outlast any Vietnamese endeavor to debase me the door opened I waited for something to happen and then in the doorway sauntered in a tall man back hunched and forehead deeply lined he studied me with uncertain eyes an American, another American. I rushed to the door as quickly as I could and grasped his hand—a hand which was completely numb from inadequate cir- circulation at the elbows. Hi, I said. I'm Charlie Plum So now you're linked up with another American.
1: <clears throat> I am. K. Russell was shot down the same day I was, and so he and I were—he uh, was my first roommate—and—and um, and, uh, you know, I was—I was. I was uh, in the same cell with a lot of different guys, and they moved us around a lot. About every six months they'd move us around, but they would give us different roommates every few months or take them all away, and I was in solitary confinement again. And uh, we never really knew why, but we assumed that it was, tried to destroy any fraternization with the guards mm. and try to disrupt any unity within the prisoners. And so, uh, so the in in fact, sometimes it's a little bit difficult to describe exactly what it was like because we were in different camps and different cells And you were different guys for the entire six years
0: You but didn't you didn't you like it when you got a new roommate because it's like a new you kind of explained the, It's like now you have a bunch of stuff to talk about with this person.
1: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. It was uh, it was glorious, you know to find a, a, a because you know he of course had all of the stories and he had The movies that he could tell you about and uh, the things that he had learned and uh, that he could teach you. So yeah, no, it was, it was wonderful. Now that would last for maybe a few months until you ran out of things and then it became almost like a marriage, you know, (laughs) where you've got those, those periods of (laughs) time, honeymoon
0: periods (laughs) over.
1: Exactly. Well, the fact of the matter is you couldn't in some of those cells, you couldn't be more than eight or 10 feet away from a guy. 24 seven for months and months and months at a time. Right. And so little things start to bug you, you know? Yeah. And, uh, it, 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 not the least of which was, uh, was our toilet. You know, we, the, the, the toilet was a two gallon bucket in the corner and, uh, lots of times it was rusted out of the top with no lid and it was just, uh, quite a, you know, it, it stunk to high heaven in a, in a lot of the cases. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was quite an irritant. Yeah.
0: You guys established a routine once you got in there. And, you know, there's a whole chapter in the book called routine. And you're waking up at 630 in the morning. You're doing prayer at that time. You're at 7 o'clock. You're, you're practicing piano. <laughs> which I like, right? You're practicing piano. And yep. that was just from memory? You, you, Had you ever played piano before?
1: I had, I had not. Now, what I did know was that my span from my pinky to my thumb was not was, – uh, I, I could span uh, nine notes on, on a piano. And so I laid out a keyboard on my board bed, and I knew where the black keys were. And I had played in, in the band, uh, and, oh, that's and, right. and, I, and I also played guitar. So I knew a little bit about chords and scales and that kind of thing and I thought well I've always wanted to play the piano, you know now's my chance this
0: this piece of wood <laughs> looks good to me <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, this
1: is this, a work
0: and then at, at 8 o'clock you're doing push-ups Yep, and sit-ups and leg lifts and whatever else so you're doing some some physical training and then you Have school the school bell rings at 9 30 a.m. And you guys are you guys are learning and teaching each other Whatever you can possibly teach each other whatever subject you were good at, you were gonna teach.
1: We did, and it was serious stuff. As a matter of fact, when we got home, University of Maryland gave us credit for what we had, you know, the, the courses we had taught, you know, without books or paper or PowerPoints or instructors or professors or anybody, because um, we we were so intent on using that time for something of value. Yeah. and. Uh, and in and, and these guys, uh, most of them smarter than I would go back through their minds and recapture all of the subjects that they had learned. One of the guys, Joe Milligan, I uh, was with him, uh, I don't know, the first few months, I guess, and he taught a, uh, a course uh, on um, uh, chemistry. No, no, biology. It was biology. And I'd never taken a course in biology, and I was very interested. And and his course lasted about a week, um, and, and and that's all he knew. But Joe, and I lived with him for a while, would lay back on his rack about an, a, an hour a day and just think about biology. Mm-hmm. And after being there for six years, he, his course lasted six months. And he knew everything from protozoas to metazoas and, and, and all of this, just because that was back there in his mind. So he's
0: able to recall that. He could recall
1: that if you deep enough. And it is amazing, you know what what's back in there in your human brain. It's, and we found that out. If you think about something long enough and hard enough, and again, you don't have these distractions of of everyday life. Mm-hmm. That uh, there's, you know, it's awful lot stored back in there. Yeah.
0: I had to bring this one up too it, because you talked about how you didn't have PowerPoint or whatever, you didn't have pens and chalkboards. And here you go. Often in my dreams, I must admit, I envisioned leaving the Noy Hilton, going home, looking for and finding a brand new yellow pencil and bringing it back to my cell. Or I would dream of entering shops containing nothing but rows and rows of pencils. I've never since taken a pencil for granted (laughs) That's that's, you know we take so much for granted I mean we we take so much for granted and uh, and to think about that right there (laughs) And what what power a pencil gives you the power to take notes the power to create the power to draw the power to write This incredible power comes from this little thing that we just gaff off like it's meaningless That's right and for you to have that much appreciation for it that you would dream about it at night Uh True yeah, it's incredible uh, 10 o'clock you'd eat and what was the, food? was the food? You're just eating rice
1: balls. Yeah, mostly rice. Uh, that was the mainstay. <clears throat> you'd, um, you know, you get a, a a small bowl of rice twice a day. Once about 10 o'clock, once about two o'clock in the afternoon. And then you had a 20 hour stretch with nothing to eat. Mm. Uh, sometimes they'd give you a bowl of broth. Uh, and sometimes it would be. Uh, some kind of vegetable turnips or uh, uh, (laughs) weeds of some kind. One we call sewer soup. (laughs) You couldn't identify this stuff. (laughs) But I didn't eat, you know, there was not enough uh, meat uh, to put in a coffee cup for a year. You know, there really was no, there was no meat of any variety. How
0: much much did you weigh when you got out?
1: Uh, I weighed about 140 when I came home, but they fattened us up before we came home. And I figure most of the time I was there about 115 pounds.
0: Did you uh, ever, was the hunger, did the hunger go away? Did you, or were you just grinding hunger or did you just get used to it?
1: Uh, It went away for the most part, you know, after, I don't know, four or five months. Um, Your your stomach sort of shrinks. And when you know that there's nothing else to eat, um, and so... You know, the, they, in all fairness, they gave us enough to keep us alive. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and, and so that, you know, and rice is a pretty perfect food. This is unpolished rice. It wasn't the Uncle Ben's that mm-hmm. we have today. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's a lot, there's, there's protein in there and there's nutrients in the rice. So that kept me alive. Yeah.
0: At dusk, you guys would have showtime. And people would do what you're talking about, describing everything, every movie they've ever seen, every book they've ever read, and all that. And uh, you mentioned in here that in the beginning of confinement, the movies that would get described or created, because people were creating movies too, right, in their heads. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And they went from PG to triple X over time. (laughs) So, uh, did anybody come out and and execute on some of these ideas that they had? Is there anybody that came out and said, yeah, I thought of this movie or oh, I thought yeah. of this book?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, several guys had great plans. <clears throat> one one guy was a, uh, a farmer, and he had planned a, a pig farm. That's, that was uh, that was his whole thing. Um, and he did. He came back, and he, I, I live with a guy by the name of Danny Glenn, who um, was an architectural student at the University of Oklahoma. And uh, Dan and I were together for a lot of years, <clears throat> and he dreamed about building this home. And, uh, and that's all he thought about was building this dream house. And he, he had several little things about this home that were very peculiar. One of them was uh, as the sunlight would come through the top of the wall around our prison – the wall was capped with barbed wire and electrical wire and broken glass. Mm-hmm. The, the glass was from bottles of various colors. And in one particular cell that Den and I were in, the sun would come through the glass, the colored glass, and onto uh, this, this, this tank of water, and then reflect up under the eaves of our thatched roof and into our cell. So we had all these colors. And it was a beautiful thing, you know, it was a kaleidoscope of colors. And so he designed a house and he figured this whole thing out, you know, with the, with the azimuth of, of the sun and, and, and all of this stuff and how he was going to do this. But, uh, and he would lay this out and he would draw on the concrete floor with a, a piece of a brick. And uh, he was a great artist, you know, the, the guy could, could design all this stuff. And uh, and of course, you know, he wanted me to be involved in this and, and bore me to tears. He said, Charlie, what color do you think my bathroom ought to be? <laughs> I don't know, Dan. I don't know. No, 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 Charlie, green or blue? I, I, I don't know. Green, Dan, green. Okay, so we, we get home in about a year after we, I was living in Kansas and uh, he was in Oklahoma and he called me up Charlie, I got us, something to show you. And so I had a little airplane at the time and I flew down to uh, Norman, Oklahoma. And he picked me up at the airport and we drove outside of town. And from about a quarter of a mile away, I saw this house that I recognized, <laughs> but I'd never been in Norman, Oklahoma. And I, I swear I could have walked in that house and and touched any faucet or any light switch you know, of the whole place because it was exactly as he had designed the prison. Unbelievable. So I went to the, the bathroom and It was blue. (laughs) (laughs) He had gone back. You know, he had built it from uh, building materials that he had remembered. And over the years that we were there, they changed. And so Mm -hmm. there were some of the it was not available. And so he went to these old lumber yards and he would find the building materials that he had planned this house with and use those to build his house. But it was incredible. Yeah. But, yeah, a lot of the guys, a lot of the guys wanted to um, sail around the world. You know, a lot of us Navy guys yeah. knew how to sail, and, and that was the, the big fantasy was to take a sailing trip around the world. And two or three of the guys actually did that when they came home.
0: Awesome. The guards, some of the guards were pretty sadistic. And here we go back to the probably the most sadistic practice of all was a game involving mice or puppies. Guards would douse them with gasoline, set them on fire, and turn them loose to squeal and scurry in search of relief from the heat. Then the soldiers would chase them with sticks, playing polo with their live fireballs until the little animals blackened and died. So you had some serious sadists here just doing evil things. And. You say you didn't see anything, book, magazine, newspaper, lyrics a song, written speech, any billboard, or anything while you were there that wasn't just 100% propaganda.
1: That's true. You know, uh, their music doesn't talk about love except for love of Ho Chi Minh and love of their country and dedication to that. Um, It's really incredible how they just fill the minds of their people with this propaganda. And uh, you know you tell somebody long enough and loud enough, and they believe it. and And that's you know that was the whole that was the whole country. the
0: at one point you got this propaganda newspaper, and it's the front page headline was that there's been a revolution in rice planting technique. And you were thinking to yourself oh man they must have invented some big machine that can like plant all the rice and now they don't have to be out there on doing the manual labor in the fields and here's the actual article for 4,000 years the Vietnamese people have been laboring sweating and toiling in the mud and water of rice paddies we've discovered a revolutionary method of planting rice through extensive research we have found that Instead of grasping the rice sprouts and planting them with the palm of the hand facing downward It is much more efficient to plant the rice sprouts with the palm of the hand facing upward (laughs) (laughs) So there's there's the propaganda coming at you and there's the advancement of the you know Them trying to tell the people how we're moving forward in the world (laughs) And that was another thing that surprised me or it didn't surprise me but how What their their understanding, you know their their brainwashed and their understanding of what American culture was like and when you'd say well Yeah, I have a car and I have an air conditioner to them That was just unbelievable because the only people that could afford that in Vietnam were the st- was the state itself
1: True, and they assumed that if you had a car, uh, you could carry pigs or chickens or something in your car. I guess that was the whole purpose of any kind of transportation was to haul something around. Mm. And uh, and they, you know, they were really surprised that you could actually just get in the car and go wherever you wanted to go.
0: And they also thought that uh, a third of Americans were starving to death. Mm-hmm. So that's you know something to think about. Oh, always when you deal with these countries where people are being indoctrinated and be, they're being fed information from the state it's gonna be it's gonna be lies and You you you, you can't be surprised when they believe something like that. You just have to say yeah, it's what they believe how do we re-educate them?
1: I went back to Vietnam uh, first time in 43 years. I hadn't been back and I uh, A lot of things had changed, you know, I mean, they, they still call themselves a communist country, but oh, by the way, capitalism is alive and well, but the propaganda still exists there. And, uh, in the, I took my family with me, uh, my wife and three of our four kids. Uh, and in the 11 days that I was there, I never met anyone. And I was at, you know, I was at the embassy. I spoke to the students at the university, I spoke to cab drivers and waitresses and anybody, and they were really, really nice people and very, very nice to me. But nobody knew that Americans had been tortured in the Vietnam War. And in fact, it was just the opposite. They all would tell you that we got better treatment than the soldiers did, and better medical care than the soldiers did. And so, and, and in fact, in and, and one of the, Uh, One of the last days I was there, I ran into uh, a lady in a park selling card postcards and she was missing uh, one leg and she was about my age. And so I sort of pieced this thing together and uh, she said, want to buy a postcard? Well, uh, I'll buy a postcard, but I want to hear your story. Sit down on this park bench and tell me your story. And she did. I said, how'd you lose your leg? (laughs) She said, linebacker two. Linebacker 2 was the code name for the B fifty two bombings mm-hmm. that ended the war in ni- in the Christmas of nineteen seventy two, uh, but it was a secret code name, you know. And for her to to, to say it, it, she she didn't call it an air raid or a bomb or anything else. She called it a linebacker 2. That was our, you know, that was pilot jargon, not mm-hmm. her jargon. And uh, and I said, uh, what wh- what what was the date? She said twenty four December nineteen seventy two. So I knew that she wasn't lying to me. She said, um, B-52. Oh, yeah. Well, so we talked for maybe 30 minutes on that park bench. And she spoke very good English. And uh, and at one point, I said to her, y- you speak excellent English. You could be an interpreter. You could be a guide. Why are you out here making a living selling postcards in a park? She said, oh, my... my uh, country would never give me a permit because I'm an invalid. Hmm. Ah, man, what a country! Uh, and and then I said, well, um, uh, do you know about the uh, the museums? Uh, oh yeah, I know all about the museums and the Hanoi Hilton Museum. See, they've made a museum out of my old prison camp. The Hanoi Hilton is now a museum. And I said, well, how were the prisoners treated at the museum? Oh, they were treated great. They had great food, they played volleyball, they had ping pong. I said, how do you know this? She said, oh, documentaries. The government shows us documentaries. Yeah. And so, she finally figured out that I was about her age and she said, were you a pilot? I said, yeah, I was a pilot. She, uh, she said, B-52? I said, no, I flew F-4 Phantoms. Oh, so were, were you flying uh, on the 24th? 20- Fourth of, of December of nineteen seventy-two. I said no, I was right here with you. Mm. I was in the Hanover Hilton, and I was being tortured. She said no, that's impossible. That that can't possibly be true. I could not convince this lady, that I would that I be or anybody else. Yeah. So the propaganda is alive and well. They keep, continue to tell their people the lies, and uh, and and the folks have no way of figuring it out. Yeah
0: you know it's uh, a another thing that that you point out in the book on that culture or that that system of government back to the book the Vietnamese rarely exerted themselves why should they if they were gonna get a meal at all they'd eat regardless of whether they worked for it or not they didn't worry they didn't have to the state was responsible for their welfare as well as their guidance even the upkeep of state property was not their problem so the scary thing when
1: is. It really is when uh, you know when folks are indoctrinated to that level, and um, but it's so prevalent, you know. Uh, and, and and they tried to do the same thing with us. Yeah. They, they tried to brainwash us, and it was more important. And
0: you were kind of worried about that too in the beginning, right? Like you thought it was. it was something you needed to be concerned about, and then you saw how ridiculous all this.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they they uh, they used a lot of of the Russian military equipment, but they never invited the Russians in to try to brainwash us. And we felt very, very happy about that because their brainwashing techniques were so silly. And, uh, you know, they would tell us just unbelievable things that uh, that we laughed at.
0: (laughs) But you thought the Russians would do a better job.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they would have. (laughs) <laughs> but more important than the rice we ate or the water we drank, in every prison cell I was in, the first thing they put in there was a speaker. And um, you know, lots lots of the prison camps didn't have any electricity at all, but they had speakers, and they were put well above our reach, so we couldn't turn them off or adjust the volume. And um, several times a day, uh, they would come on with uh, propaganda. And telling us, you know, how bad we were, and how terrible our country was, and how wonderful they were, and um, and, and, and it, it was pretty easy to turn these guys off, you know, just to f- ignore the uh, the broadcast. But it was also very concerning, you know, to see that that's the way they mm-hmm. it's the way they indoctrinate their own people. Horrible.
0: You you talked about a little bit earlier. You talked about the communication. And and what that was all about and you had this the first time you were in your cell You hear a little scraping and eventually you go over and it's a little wire and and eventually a note comes through it And here we go back to the book it had a piece of toilet paper tied to it I unfolded it and found these words memorize code eat note The code was easier to memorize than the note was to eat But I did both I rechecked the door sat back down on the honey bucket and tugged on the wire. The code was a series of tugs which represented letters of the alphabet and it's it's basically a five by five code, A B, C, D, G, E, F, G. And that is how you guys communicated. And that had to be how long does it take to have a conversation with that code? Because you give, you know, one, two tugs <laughs> to go down and then one, two, three tugs to go across how long does it take? Well, you, these conversations must have
1: taken a long time. Well, th- that's true, but that was the beauty of it because that's all we had was time. And, and that was a very good way of uh, of wiling away the hours, tugging on the wires or tapping on walls and uh, or or, or uh, sneezing and wheezing. We had all kinds of ways to communicate. And uh, and we took great pride in our communication effort.
0: And the, the sneezing and wheezing, that's, that just... Was it Morse? How did the sneezing and wheezing
1: work? No, coughing. It was the same kind of thing, you know. Uh, it was all based around this five by five matrix of the alphabet, okay. and so a cough would would be one, a sneeze would be two, a wheeze would be three, uh, on and, and so forth, so that so that two sounds would equal a letter, mm-hmm. and we use this in a lot of different ways. If a guy was outside chopping wood for a fire, for instance. And he would chop in this code, chop 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 chop, chop 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 chop, chop 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 chop, and it was it was well we called it we called it a radio station, because everybody could hear it, and and so if if a new guy came into the camp and and we knew who the president was you know lots of we did we had no information at all. Or knew uh, who won the World Series, for instance. Why that was really big deal, you know, to get out there and and chop the wood in a radio station and and tell the entire camp who was the president.
0: Did the, the, the did the guards ever catch on to that five by five code?
1: Yes, uh, occasionally, a couple of guys were tortured to to reveal the code, but they could. But they were. It was really interesting because they were so. Um, Uncoordinated that they couldn't replicate the code and they on several cases They tried to trick us and they would empty out a cell and they would uh, go into that cell and try to Tap on the wall or tug on the wire in the code and we knew immediately, you know that it wasn't an American <laughs> yeah.
0: And you guys would get like I said it's interesting you count you You laid out two things that first the Vietnamese were like uh, pretty much okay with stealing Mm-hmm. And so you wouldn't get punished for stealing that bad, but the communication thing is what they is what they would definitely punish you yep. for. Yep, true. Yeah, that. Uh, I I mean that's the same thing. I mean when we capture prisoners overseas, we don't want them to talk to each other. We'd separate them, mm-hmm. and you don't want them to talk to each other. And at some point, you started getting letters mm-hmm. and receiving letters. And how did that change the environment?
1: Well um, you know first of all we were just overjoyed to see that, that our that our families you know that my wife uh, was was okay and um, and that they knew that we were alive and so it was you know it was a wonderful connection to, that we made now we we call them letters but actually they were uh, postcards and um, and they were highly edited. Uh, It began with the postcards were just blanked out. And then the Vietnamese decided that's not good enough. They actually would cut out certain words. And so you get a postcard of six lines and maybe of the six lines, there might be uh, 15 words that were just cut out with a pair of scissors uh, so, so that sometimes you really couldn't figure it out what they were trying to say. But. You know that the fact that uh, that was in the handwriting mm-hmm. of a loved one uh, was uh, was, uh, was 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 very comforting.
0: And yet those bastards—and I use that term very specifically for this situation—the dear John letters they'd leave those completely oh, yeah. good to go and, oh, get, yeah. and turn those
1: over. <laughs> yeah, and, you know. <laughs> Can certain, I say and,
0: bastards for that? Sh- that kind of behavior. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Some> bastards. <laughs> Yeah, they were quick to uh, to tell us that our wives had filed for divorce, or that uh, you know our parents had died, or that, that any bad news uh, they were they were very quick to promote. Yeah,
0: the chain of command that you guys you know here you are in this prison camp, and you guys all you know you figured out, you realize we need to have a chain of command, and you put that structure into place, and. When you did that did that I mean it seems like it would have it seems like that gave you guys so much strength as an, as a group to get in the chain of command to organize yourselves it seemed like that gave you guys so much strength and and fortitude as you as you were there
1: it was absolutely our survival uh, was our chain of command um, <clears throat> What, what you don't know in reading my book, because it only happened uh, two or three years ago, a study was done of all the combatants of Vietnam, of all the million and a half people that were exposed to that war, 30.6% have PTSD. Almost a third of the combatants in Vietnam, post-traumatic stress disorder, of the prisoners of war, 4% of us have PTSD. And it's primarily the guys who were shot down near the end of the war were only prisoners for a few weeks or a month or two. And what we really believe, this is spelled out in another book um, called Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton, which uh, was written about uh, two years ago. Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton explains that the reason why we came back and are in such great shape is because of the unit that we had in the leadership that we had in the prison camps. Because of the, the 591 guys came home, and of the 591, and they thought we'd be in baskets, they thought we'd be vegetables. They had our families briefed to institutionalize us for the rest of our lives. That's what they thought was coming home from the prison camp. I and mean, what can you expect? From 591 guys, we've produced 17 generals, seven admirals, most of us retired as senior grade military officers, We have doctors and lawyers and preachers and teachers and bishops and judges. We have a bunch of congressmen, two United States senators, two ambassadors. We have a vice presidential candidate, a presidential candidate, my old flight instructor, John McCain. And they're telling us today we're healthier mentally and physically than if we hadn't been shot down. And it was primarily because of the leadership, the chain of command that we had over there, the unity that we found and the purpose. That's what the leadership in the prison camp did for us. Uh, Jim Stockdale uh, was our senior SRO, senior residing officer in the prison camp for a long time. And he said, we are no longer victims of circumstance beyond our control. We are not on the defensive here. We are military men. We are combatants, and we will pursue this war till our last breath. And so, what he did, what that did, was it, it, it gave us a, a reason to live, a reason to be, a reason to unify. And the 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 way we fought the war from the prison camp was to try to deny them any propaganda, because as you as you've already said, Jocko, that this that propaganda was the mainstay. I mean, that was that was. Numero uno, in their world, was, was propagandizing, and they felt that that they that they could use us to tell the rest of the world how wonderful communism was and how terrible capitalism was and how they were right and we were wrong, and so they would they would uh, force guys to make tapes or write letters to the anti-war element and uh, you know proclaim the, the 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 wonderful nature of communism. And so, our job was to defend against this, and uh, and so we set up all kinds of, of methods so that we would deny uh, them any propaganda, or even in some cases we would, would even go farther than to deny, deny the propaganda. We would use their tools against them, and that we would tell the world that oh by the way we are being tortured, and oh by the way you know this you know these guys are attacking our neighbor in South Vietnam. And so so th- so that was the big effort. And and uh, you know like I said this whole thing just came came out uh a few years ago that this was the big reason that we did so well and that we're ho- so healthy uh mentally and physically to today was because we had this chain of command. And
0: on top of that, and this is what I've really one of the big points I wanted to talk about today was what you're just hitting on is that people have this idea that the military chain of command is this rigid structure and that's why it survives. And that's, but that, but you guys were put into a position that. It, it was yes, there's a military chain of command just like I had in the SEAL teams And if you if you think in the SEAL teams that I was the guy that was in charge And I was barking the orders and everyone was following everything I said it's like no it wasn't like that It's a much more collaborative deal and you you and and this really became clear one section of the book here I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna read that What you were dealing with and how challenging this leadership position was for the people that were were leading So here we're going back to the book making sure that everyone was on our team was the first of many objectives understanding the rules of the game was the second it was assumed that all of us had a basic knowledge of the military discipline and the code of conduct this code a very general document was open to many interpretations how we construed the code often depended on the severity of the situation no longer could we pick up a telephone and call the Pentagon for advice the broad spectrum of the code divided the men into at least two groups those who were disciplinarians by nature and interpreted the code strictly and those who were liberal and rendered the code loosely we called these two groups the tough guys and the softies but this is is the key part right here softy was not derogatory The name simply indicated a different approach to the code. Tough guys, who referred to the line, I will never surrender of my own free will, sometimes flaunted their incorrigibility and taunted the guards. The Vietnamese answered with torture, and the tough guys occasionally relinquished more information than the softies who never committed themselves. Regardless of our attitudes, we were all in the same boat. Each of us had acquiesced to the Vietnamese control to some extent whether accepting cigarettes or bowing to guards. The line which separated the tough guys from the softies was often unclear. The important thing was to display unity, regardless of our individual philosophies. We clearly understood that the Vietnamese would capitalize on any chinks they found in our armor. Unity didn't evolve automatically, learning its value required from us such introspection and sacrifice. How could a camp SRO appease the softies if he interpreted the code too strictly? Or if he was too lax for the tough guys? He was in an untenable position, having little control over the actions of men in other rooms. He had excessive responsibility, but none of the tools of authority. No reduction of salary, suspension of liberty, court martial, indeed, most of the fellows he had never seen his only association being a tap on the wall or a scribbled message. To meet this impractical setting, the SRO wielded gentle sticks of diplomacy. They knew we were not boots, meaning boot camp, guys fresh out of boot camp, who, who, who asked how high at the command to jump. We were all trained leaders who acted independently. For the first few years, the SRO's authority was limited to advice rather than orders realizing the importance of unity we respected his this advice as though it were an order what if we refused an order on the basis that it did not come from the commander but rather from five men who interpreted it through an error ridden system what if compliance to the order brought certain torture we were very alone in answering these questions once I received an order plum request you communicate with Captain Abbott at all costs what did the SRO mean by at all costs did it include being caught and put in leg irons for months at a time so uh, the way that that is laid out it reflects not just leadership in a prison camp I'm here to tell you it reflects leadership in every situation because the minute that you as a leader decide that you're just going to impose your will on other people is where you start to lose respect and people start questioning what you're doing that's very true And I think that the way that this comes out and that probably is one of the reasons why you know I didn't know about the the uh, facts that you just told me about the only 4% having PTSD I mean and obviously rattled off all the successful POWs that came out of this horrible situation but that openness that open mind as leaders and and as subordinates to say look I'm getting this advice, right? Mm-hmm. This is so called advice from the boss. I respect it. I'm going to act on it not because I have to, but because I understand the mission. I understand mm-hmm. why we're doing this. And therefore it's not something that's being imposed on me. It's something that I am accepting and pushing forward of my own accord. Mm-hmm. That's a huge difference.
1: It truly is. I I but I must admit that when I first heard about this, I I I was taken aback, and I'm thinking, you know, this is really silly. I've got some senior officer down to the in cell of the cell block, and he's putting more restrictions on me than I already have. You know, I mean, what, 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 what's he going to do? You know, take away my liberty card? <laughs> uh, throw you in the brig? <laughs> uh, yeah, throw me in the brig. <laughs> I'm there, uh, and. Um, uh, and I had to be convinced, you know, that this was in our best interest. Uh, but it, but it, it truly was. And obviously, that's the reason we came out as healthy as we did was because we – well, you, you say it better than most. Discipline, you know, a, a discipline brought about freedom. Mm-hmm. And, and it was kind of crazy because we were being restricted even more. And yet because of the restriction, we had unity, which gave us the freedom yeah
0: yeah and then you guys started taking the broad code of conduct and and specifying it because you guys had so much time into these things that you called plums right and you didn't really know what the establishment of the word plums came from but they were they were detailed tenants right. of how you all were going to carry yourself and you called them plums and they were things like the order that you were gonna go home and um, you know not aiding the the Vietnamese and in, in whitewashing the truths um, The resistance how what level of resistance you were gonna give when you were when you were in uh, Interrogated how much resistance you were gonna give with and and Rescon six was just you know military bearing and then rescon one was straight-up hunger strike.
2: Mm-hmm
1: That was one of the greatest displays. I think uh, that really affected the enemy was when they found out that when our commanding officer of a a camp could say, "Okay, Rescon Three, no more bowing to the enemy," and uh, so throughout the camp, in these individual cells, you know, there might be there might be seventy-five different cells, and suddenly. At the stroke of one, one button, you know, nobody would bow to the guards. And it really frightened them to know that we had that much control, that much unity. And it was a silly thing, mm-hmm. but, it, but it really felt so good, you know, that, yeah. that, we, had, that, that we had some leverage here.
0: <laughs> and and the, the other thing was that how you stayed un- unified. Was by not accepting favors, and mm-hmm. then you had to just the dichotomy of leadership, right? You got a balance between, hey, if I can accept a favor and it's going to help us and yeah. it's going to make me healthier, it's going to, then I should probably do it. But then they put this, then the the commander, the SRO would put a, a, a restriction or a, a reasonable time frame. So this was a classic example because I already talked about how how how. In Love you were with pencils at this point <laughs> right. and at some point you got a pencil somehow you got a, They gave you a pencil and you know the word spread that you guys had a pencil and the, the the report or the the direction came back was okay You have 30 days to get more pencils So we're all equal or you got to give the pencil back right and you didn't get any more pencils and you had to give that pencil back Yep. that's <laughs> <laughs> but that you can see how when you uh, How unified you are and how just like you said that shows the 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 guards and the camp leaders Hey, we are unified that mm-hmm. you can't break us. You can't give mm-hmm. you can't give somebody some special help and not give it to everyone.
1: Yep Unbelievable
0: Now you started talking about this a little earlier and I had to dig a Little bit deeper on it because I think it hits a pert message, right? So when you talk about living with somebody Mm-hmm. And how, when you're living with somebody and the furthest you can get away from them is eight feet, sometimes I feel like this with Echo, and we're, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we don't even live with this guy, but sitting in this podcast thing for, and you start saying, okay, that's gonna, what What things start to grind on you and irritate you. So, whether they were exercise you get a guy that's going to exercise while you're trying to sleep, or you get a guy that snores, mm-hmm. which. If you've ever dealt with somebody that snores they can't help but they don't even know that they sound like a chainsaw in your room <laughs> yeah. and you deal with you might get roomed up with somebody that snores every single night right. and the l- worst thing about somebody that snores is when you start thinking that it bothers you it bothers, bothers you, you even more, and more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right The pacing. (laughs) Pacing was another thing that would, you know, I'm just going to get up and pace and, hey, man, just sit down. So, all these things, some POWs ate rice a grain at a time. (laughs) A grain at a time. And, you know, they got all these little, um, these little, I I guess these little idiosyncrasies, right? And what you eventually said was, I'm going to those idiosyncrasies that bothers me about you and I'm gonna take the blame on myself I shouldn't be bothered by this and I'm the one that can't let it bother me mm-hmm. and that is a huge difference to what most people do which is hey it's all about me and if you're bothering me you need to change right. and you're all's attitude was no you know what my attitudes uh, you don't need to change I need to change I need to become more Accepting of the way you are—that's mm-hmm. a big deal. It if you is. can make that transition in your life, you'll be a much happier person.
1: <laughs> That's true, and I'm—I'm I'm still trying. <laughs> we all are. <laughs> <laughs> and
0: it's—it's uh, it's one of those things where it really is a game changer because now in you know it's extreme ownership right i'm not going to blame mm. everything on you for annoying me i'm going to take <laughs> it on myself and yep. then sometimes you would you'd have something that really like maybe you couldn't sleep and now you got to talk mm. to somebody else and have have an indirect conversation instead of saying hey echo's really bothering me clicking his pen over there yep. it, it's it's going to drive me crazy can yep. you maybe talk to him about his pen etiquette <laughs> and have him stop that <laughs> he's not doing it today sir but there was a, there was an episode where He had the pen in his hand. Things got a little bit fidgety. And yeah, uh, yeah. I didn't let it bother me. You know what I did? Brought him a new pen that didn't have the clicker on it. I took ownership of that situation. You
1: You know, in today's world, we have uh, so many people that are so offended by certain things. And and it's it's the same principle there is that uh, if you offend me, that's really more my problem than it is your problem. You know, it's uh, I'm the one that that decides if you inf- offend me, <laughs> so so I need to change my idea of what's offensive. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, one of the things that and you know, we're we're it's easy for, to sit and laugh here a little bit about some of this stuff, but one of your chapters is called insanity and um, I'm going to the book here the first I knew of it was in the fall of 1968 and I didn't understand an old beat-up French ambulance ram- r- rattled into the courtyard and an American wearing prison guard crawled out he weaved like a robot with head down and shoulders slumped it was odd guards never l- allowed POWs to walk that way we double-timed who was this man had he just come from the hospital? Was he tortured into semi consciousness or was he faking? When would we find out? The man was hallucinatory, insisting that his cellmates were communists pieced together with limbs and heads of dead Americans. Whose arm is that? He asked. Is that my pilot's arm? How can you commies speak such good English? Because this man was wasting away, it was necessary for his cellmates to force feed him the hostile patient was still strong requiring four or five men to constrain him so that a bamboo stick could be forced between his teeth another prisoner mashed rice down his throat when they finished he would gag himself to regurgitate what he thought was poison from the communists spewing rice all over the room he was entranced when the Vietnamese entered a room he refused to bow angered a guard screamed bow bow and whipped his fist across the expressionless face the man continued to stand the guards continued to beat him unmercifully then you guys continued to see this every six months or so we saw our sick POW comrade transported between solitary confinement and the hospital we felt helpless the only way we could assist was with prayer after September 1970 we never saw him again
1: there's a little more to that story that I did not know when I wrote the book, that he had been a part of, a, of an experiment done by a Cuban. Uh, the Cuban came over to the communist country and as near as we could tell, his sole purpose of being in Vietnam was to, to establish the breaking point of an American fighting man. And so this guy that I am talking about in the book, and I didn't, didn't know his name at the time I wrote the book, Earl Cobiel was actually tortured to insanity. Uh, and, that's, uh, and that is why he was insane. And, uh, and so his roommates, and he was very belligerent. And uh, I mean, here's another leadership principle, because you've got a group of guys in that prison cell that were being threatened, and some of them were, were had broken bones or lacerations because of this crazy man. He goes on a hunger strike and is gonna kill himself by not eating. And they had to decide whether or not they were gonna force feed him and keep him alive and bring him back to his belligerence or let him die. And so it was it was quite a dilemma in the prison camp and quite a dramatic time uh, when, when that was happening. And, uh, and they did, they force feed him and brought him back to health and then uh, the Vietnamese, uh, for a reason we never really knew, but possibly because they saw that we had some control, and they didn't want us to have that control. They pulled him out of that cell, put him in solitary confinement, and 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 then he died uh, after that. But uh, but it was a it was a tragic event uh, that a guy would uh, be tortured to the point of insanity.
0: And that was the purpose of the torture. it so. well, exactly. That's what you said you said they the purpose. The, oh no, the purpose. The, was the was purpose to find was breaking to, point.
1: Yeah, to find the breaking point, and they found it with this with Kobeal.
0: You have another chapter, and we touched on this a little bit earlier about faith. Going back to the book, Thy will be done. Thy will be done. It seemed presumptuous to try to change God's will, to make a deal with the omnipotent. If I promised to devote my life to the ministry in exchange for freedom and failed to follow through, what then? No trying to bargain with God was unfitting from the beginning I offered prayers of acceptance I remembered the experience of seeing the Christ-like shadow in the green knobby room and the comfort I felt in that time of great need that day I asked God for strength to endure whatever hardship I might face and I prayed for anne not for her fidelity or success but for tolerance courage and most of all her happiness with without me I continued this daily prayer now this was faith was not just yours but everyone and here we go again showing some of the power that you guys had as prisoners back to the book thousands of Bibles had been sent to us from church groups all over the world but the Vietnamese gave us none asking wasn't enough so we decided to go on a hunger strike our senior officer informed the Vietnamese that we simply didn't want more food until we could have a Bible and uninterrupted worship they retaliated by shutting off our drinking water after a few days the Vietnamese were ready to settle and so were we they would give us A church service if we abided by certain stipulations the service would be held according to their schedule no one could sing no one could stand and everyone would adhere strictly to camp regulations every word spoken in the ceremony was to be written down for the censors perusal after all the restrictions we hadn't gained much but at least the V had given an inch after a few weeks later the V saw that our services were not militant and relaxed restrictions. They permitted a four-man choir to sing two hymns. Most important, they gave us a Bible for two days. So you guys decided to hold the line on
1: that one. We did, and, um, and, it, and it wasn't easy. They, it, an interesting thing, back to the leadership, was the, the guy who promoted this was a, was a very staunch Christian guy. The number two in command was an atheist and, 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 and really had no great interest in having a Bible in the cell. And so when the number one guy um, told the Vietnamese that we were going to go on a hunger strike, they, they hauled him out of there. They, they took him away so that the number two guy, the atheist, was suddenly in charge. And it was interesting to watch what was going to happen here. And it was very encouraging when the atheist said, "Continue the hunger strike. You know, we're going to get this Bible." That's awesome.
0: You you talk about their perception, uh, the Vietnamese perception of mm-hmm. of religion in general. Back to the book. The large majority of Vietnamese were not Catholic, however, and when they discovered us in prayer, as they did only the last year, they asked, "What what you derive from this thing, God?" We tried to explain that we received strength, comfort, help, and promise of eternal life. These concepts were too difficult for them, yet many seemed interested and did not mock our beliefs. To the diehard Vietnamese communist, the state was their God. Their truth, their way, their light. The controlling body and the government decreed infallible canons without fear of correction. Whenever peasants asked, who is the state? they were told that they themselves were and that they had control in making decisions each was told that he was part of the omniscient state he was as long as he didn't interfere I consider my confinement in prison to be spiritually beneficial I was given an opportunity that few men have the time to pause to reflect and to establish priorities I found that my previous value system was unrealistic stripped of all my material wealth the only beacon I could hone home in on was my faith in an unchanging God and you also went very deep on thoughts around patriotism and here's your talking about patriotism some POWs were super patriots (coughs) feeling the United States could do no wrong a Few felt that we had made a mistake and that it was time for us to get out with most of the prisoners I Accepted the fact that we were not perfect But felt that we were fighting for a worthy cause and should persevere into the end and this is something I've brought up on Many occasions, the fact of how hard we, when I fought in the war in Iraq and we went through extreme measures to try and protect the civilian populace and the civilian infrastructure. And here's your comments on that. Back to the book great efforts were made to persevere the lives and property of civilians. Pilots were threatened with court martial if they failed to pinpoint accurate military targets even to the extent that they would jeopardize their own lives by swooping just above treetops to preserve a peasant hut 50 yards from a SAM radar scope. The Vietnamese capitalizing on this made targets especially difficult by placing their military equipment in the middle of peasant hamlets or next to schools. In fact, several anti-aircraft artillery guns were stationed on hospital rooftops. And your, your thoughts about the involvement here the most powerful free nation in history could not idly watch the communist world gobble up and dissolve sovereign nations we had to play the surgeon to excise the malignant disease of mind control I don't condone war I think there are few justifiable reasons for killing in Vietnam war was a last-ditch effort of international diplomacy it was difficult to justify my six years of imprisonment when politicians with expense paid trips to Paris should have solved the problems through negotiation in this case our negotiations were at the end of their rope the communists didn't understand anything but the big hammer when our B-52s shattered Hanoi's defenses with thousands of bombs the Vietnamese realized we meant business in this thought here we faced East once a week and pledged our allegiance we contrasted our Bill of Rights and the Constitution to the Communist Manifesto daily we saw how Big Brother destroyed individuality we compared our lot with that of the guards while prisoners of war were behind bars the Vietnamese were captives inside their own bamboo borders we consider ourselves more fortunate than they one day we would
1: leave ourselves
0: powerful statement
1: and that's exactly the way we we thought was that that they were the prisoners and we and we weren't we were always we were always uh, of the belief that we would go home and they had to stay there you know, they, 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 had to, they had to stay in their prison and we would eventually be released and you were right
0: and during the week of 21 to 28 january 1973 for the first time treatment was actually humane Vietnamese set up a volleyball net and allowed us to play or to exercise they gave us books and magazines from home we knew something was happening so you guys started to sense that it was and you and you talk about this in the book I didn't go into it much but there was always some people that were uh, what would you call them? the people that would look at the amount of food you got
1: oh yes
0: and, and they would they would Read the f- amount of rice you'd be given as to some f- foreseeing the future of how long you're going to be in there. For. What'd you
1: call them in the book? Uh, we call them, um, well, I've Like, like fooditarians yeah, or something exactly, like yeah. that.
0: <laughs> no, gastronomers. 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 That's, right, that's what it was, yeah. Gastronomers, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone that said, oh, they gave us more rice, we must be getting ready to be released. And mm-hmm. you hear that feeling. Uh, it sounds like. You know, once a year, once once every eighteen months. Oh you yeah. Said, oh yeah. Here it oh, yeah, is. No, no. We're out. Oh yeah. No. Uh,
1: well, of course, it depended on the person. But some of the guys were so optimistic, and uh, and I was an optimist. <laughs> uh, you know, I I would think uh, you know home. In fact, when I was first shot down, uh, I th- I thought we'd had finally given him the the big blow. You know, we finally brought them to their knees on the nineteenth of May. And and the first few days in prison, I thought, you know, this is really going to be ironic because if the war is over and I fly home and and my squadron has to take the ship home, I will be there to <laughs> greet them when they come home. I mean, that's that, a that's, seriously <laughs> positive attitude <that's>, right there. <laughs> that is optimism. Those
0: poor guys have to ride the ship back. I'm gonna be home before them. <laughs> oh man, that's like I was. I've said this before on the podcast. I always, when I'm in in a commercial aircraft flying, mm-hmm. I always think if this thing blows up in the sky I'm gonna live I'm gonna be that guy Mm -hmm. you know of course I'm not gonna get killed. (laughs) sure everyone else is gonna die not me (laughs) Uh, and so finally here we go back to the book the camp commander once again called our group together about 180 of us old-timers it was the first time that all prisoners in the camp were gathered in one place we lined up by buildings in military formation, and were called to attention by our acting wing commander, Lieutenant Colonel Norm Gaddis. Although Vietnamese officials did not recognize our rank structure, they said nothing. The camp commander read an announcement, and the interpreter read the translation. It had been a long time since I had heard English worded so professionally. When he finished, and told us we could go, our wing commander again called us to attention and dismissed us. With bowed heads with heads bowed we walked quietly back to our rooms we were stunned some had waited for these words for over eight and one-half years the war was over we were going home did that even feel real at that point after you no, had your hopes
1: up so many times. It really didn't. And they would tried to trick us many times, you know, they would call us and hey, sign this confession, we'll send you home. And uh and so even when it happened for real, it 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 we couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't really until we finally I got aboard that uh, that C141 and it took off, and the wheels in the well. And and
0: when there was a little uh a little bit of a administrative situation when it came time because you guys had all knew that you were going to follow the order that you were capt the, the the sick and injured were going to go first, then the enlisted guys were going to go, and then order of capture.
1: Exactly, and that was part of the plums. Right. Okay. That that was that was part of all of the rules that had that that we were abiding by, and so <clears throat> uh, we were in. Uh, we were numbered okay the second inch you guys got, uh, went home and then it was our turn but by number of the date of shootdown. and they pulled 20 of us out that were out of order of the shoot down date and uh, we made a big deal of this and uh, and they they told us well Kissinger told us we uh, we almost caused an international incident because for, for whatever reason we really never knew for sure except that All 20 of us had um, had some some disappointing um, uh, feature to our return. And we never knew if that was the reason or not. But we were either coming back to deaths in the family or disease or divorce or that kind of thing. All 20 guys. And so but we were out of order and we did not know why we were out of order. And so we we told them we weren't going home and it went back and forth. For almost a day uh, that we refused to go home.
0: And then finally, uh, Colonel Gaddis just pulled you in and said, Listen, you guys are going home.
1: Yeah. He you gave know. us the direct order.
0: And then you get to the airport. At the airport, the bus halted near pockmark runways. We exited solemnly through a crowd of people and by. Microphone we were told To walk to our receiving officer when our names were called as I heard my name I stepped past a table where Vietnamese and American representatives marked off the exchange I Saluted a colonel then another and was escorted by an officer who was so excited he could have he could say nothing more than isn't it great It's so nice to have you back. We've all been waiting for you. Isn't it great? I felt as though he'd previously composed what he would say but in his excitement his record stuck <laughs> He was right it was great I walked up on the ramp of the c141 and saw the first Navy uniform the officer inside that uniform grabbed me and hugged me and told me his name I didn't know him until he told me he was the briefing officer on the Kitty Hawk the day I was shot down Gary Morrow and I had once worked many hours together and now we could joyfully recall old times as soon as I was in the airplane a nurse kissed me and started the first of a long chain of flashbulbs we were given American cigarettes magazines and information sheets telling us what to expect at Clark Air Force Base the pilot taxied down the runway pushed off pushed the throttles and at the moment of liftoff suddenly it hit us we were off North Vietnamese soil we screamed above the noise of the ed- engines minutes later we were soaring above the Gulf of Tonkin And saw some of our ships the commander of the seventh fleet sent a message of welcome and Jim returned the radio comm with a thankful acknowledgement by nightfall we reached the Philippines and Clark Air Force Base as soon as the doors opened we could see and hear the enthusiasm from what must have been 5,000 people banners and bands choral groups and cheerleaders everyone seemed to be there I walked down the ramp Saluted a general and then an Admiral as I shook the Admiral's hand. I was so overcome with emotion
1: That I hugged him So you hugged the Admiral that was embarrassing <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know why I did that. You know, it was just one, uh, the, sir. One can those I things. maybe maybe <laughs> yeah. make, take a stab at that? You've been gone for six and a half
0: years. I would have hugged yeah, but, him. Yeah, I think but, I would have kissed him. <laughs> <laughs> It'd been on. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. You're allowed to hug the admiral when you come home after that. No, that's uh, okay. but I, I could tell when you wrote that you were sort of like, what I just do, but exactly uh, overcome with emotions and <laughs> and then you start kind of the in processing thing. I'm that had to be when they start handing you magazines and cigarettes and food and all that you go into that somewhat in here Where they're just how overwhelming is that
1: that was wonderful? It was joyful
0: You know I was reading through uh, some Vietnam POW poetry and I got Caught you know, you know, I was you know, just looking for background. I want to learn more and you know People express themselves in poetry, and I've got locked into probably a dozen poems. That was mm. nothing but different foods, like <laughs> like, like raspberry cake, and I just <laughs> a steak and milk and chocolate milk, and every you know there was like, like a dozen poems that were
1: just about food. <laughs> so. My my favorite one was Jerry Coffey wrote a poem. It was called "Ode to a Weevil," and the poem was "Little Weevil in My Bread." I think I just bit off your head. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Yeah, that, that, was <laughs> 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 that was the end of the all. That was the end of the
0: weave. All too. <laughs> it's kind of dope. So you definitely. guys, you guys are, you know, uh, that had to be somewhat overwhelming. But you know, mm-hmm. like you said, you guys, uh, you guys were were in good, relatively good mental status at this we were. point. yeah, amazing. Yeah. Now. As you're going through the motions with the doctors and the physical people and the uh, the uh, the PAs the public affairs people you're, you're saying hey um you know why don't I see my wife what's up with my wife and no one's really answering that question for you and finally you get the chaplain and you say going back to the book here I looked up at him and said chaplain I have a great deal of faith in you and I want you to level with me So far, I haven't been able to get a straight answer from anyone and I want to know about my wife Would you please be kind enough to tell me what's going on? And he says back well Charlie there is a problem with your wife. She is well, but she has some misgivings I'm not sure as to the extent, but I'm sure that everything is going to be all right She's written me a letter, but I didn't want to open it. I Felt that you should And you get the letter and it's Nothing crystal clear, but the message is clear enough that you know, she's Not wanting to stay married to you anymore And you call her
1: The next day Actually call my my parents first okay back in Kansas Um, I tried to call her but uh, it didn't it didn't work in fact they were they were very protective, you know. First of all, they thought they thought I might be suicidal when I heard the news, mm-hmm. and so they were very protective of me. And I they wouldn't they wouldn't let me call home. Um, even the chaplain and the psychiatrists and psychologists mm-hmm. wouldn't let me call home. E-
0: home, even to your parents, even to my parents. Yeah,
1: they, they had this plan of of how they were going to explain this to me, I guess, but they wouldn't let me call. I finally found a social worker in the hospital. You know, hey, I want to I want you got a telephone around here. And so I I found a phone and I and I called my parents back in Kansas. And uh, and they're the ones that actually told me. You know, never forget my mom's words. She said son, i would give 10 year, years of my life if I didn't have to tell you this, but She's engaged to be married to another man. She's she's filed for divorce, and the judge wouldn't give her a divorce. You know, her, her the, the, um, the justification was uh, abandonment, you know. She, her husband had aban- abandoned her, and the judge wasn't buying that. And so, but no, that was the first I knew was when my mother told me that uh, she had filed for divorce.
0: You know, I— um, going back to the book here. A few days later, so you talk to Anne, but then y- y- some of the stuff you say here is—I actually—I just—I just have to quote it. Um, back to the book. Yet Anne had told me that she wanted to remarry. I would not become an obstacle to her happiness. I called her parents, and they seemed quite unsettled about Anne's decision. A few days later, I called Anne again, and she complained that many members in the news media had been harassing her. She said she had often been misquoted and was the victim of character assassination I then talked personally to some of the newspaper men and told them that I did not want her to be maligned in any way in fact I wanted them to say nothing at all about my wife for the most part they were receptive to my wishes I gave them a quote which they could use if they felt they had to the divorce is regrettable is a regrettable but inevitable drifting apart after so many years by this time my hope for reconciliation was dead I was determined to take it on the chin and roll with the punches.
1: Well, I may be coming off as a white knight here, but it wasn't at at all that way. She, I I really, to this day, believe that in many ways, the ladies had it worse than we did. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's the, it's the families back here. You know, I mean, the the military guys are over there and I'm sure you've seen this in, in your experience as well is that we we believe in what we're doing we're dedicated we focused you know we're over there having a high old time the families back here don't have that and especially my wife didn't know if, if i was alive or dead from one day to the next she went through the same years 24 to 30 that i did she was supposed to be faithful to me and she was supposed to you know believe that i'd coming home not knowing if i'd ever come home and if I did, would I still want to be married or would I be a basket case and a burden to her the rest of her life? And the, the other part of this, which, was, which I, I didn't know at the time, of course, but she lost her support group. You know, they had a big wives club, the, the squadron pilots. All of our wives got together and they would take pictures and send us cookies and make tapes and all these things. And it was a very close-knit group, the, the, the wives of the pilots. Well, when I was shot down or when anybody was killed or captured, that wife was sort of summarily shunned by the rest of the group, not, not officially, but just because they didn't, you know, they, they didn't want to, um, they didn't know what to say. And they didn't want to be associated with somebody who had that problem. They didn't want, they didn't want that to affect their life. So she lost her support group. She, uh. uh She went back to Kansas, went back to school there. And then when she fell in love with this other guy, she lost what support group she had at home because her parents were upset. My parents were upset. I have a brother 10 years younger than I am that that looks a lot like me. And he was of about the same age during this, uh, the latter part of this experience that I had been when, when Ann and I met. And he would go over to mow her lawn, in Kansas, and she would break out in hives—serious, emergency room kind of hives—just uh, at the sight of my little brother because he looked like me. And and so they finally, uh, the doctors restricted him from ever seeing her because it caused her so much uh, grief. So it was tough on the ladies, any way you look at it. And and I saw that, and I felt that, and I. Felt like I needed to do whatever was necessary to give her a little peace.
0: Well, you might not think you came off like a white knight, but that's a pretty, you know, awesome treatment of someone
1: for sure. I, uh, well, and a lot of people, um, you know, didn't understand it then, and and even don't understand it to today. And you know, some people want to blame her, uh, but I, I, I have no animosity, no blame whatsoever. Um, for what she did, I mean it was uh, uh, I have other people that will say, well, don't you wish that she had known early on that she was going to divorce you? No way, yeah, I would say no to that her. One. No her, her. The thoughts of her kept me alive. You know that was I mean that was my purpose was to go back and be with her. Mm-hmm. The fact that it didn't happen, of course, it's somewhat incidental. But the six years I was there, it was certainly a positive for me to think about her. And uh,
0: you you wrap up the book with um, a chapter called "Reflections," which is just phenomenal. And you, you know, looking back at kind of what you learned there, and I'm going to hit some of the some of the parts of it because there's so much that everybody. Can, can learn from this going here to the book our closed society subsisted we ate slept breathed we laughed and we cried we were frustrated and we were gratified we were embarrassed and we were proud slowly almost imperceptibly particular patterns of behavior edged into our daily activities and came until they became folkways there was nothing unusual about a man pacing the floor for hours like a caged tiger no one no notice was given to the man lifting his soup bowl and licking it spotless there was no stigma in bearing our souls to one another we had our own mores and sense of propriety our microcosm was a petri dish containing its own strains and culture although we had not been hand-picked we were for the most part out of the same mold that of the professional officer and pilot we were unique prisoners who acted differently from those of Korea or World War II. we had been exposed to a different selection process and a new era of lifestyles gathered together in a dubious fraternity of Hanoi skydivers we were a group of cocky individuals we knew we were the best Stripped of personal possessions of million-dollar airplanes of rank and prestige We suddenly found ourselves at the bottom of a dark pit We could no longer look outward Our only alternative was to make the best of what we had And when you have so little and for you guys to take that attitude then there's so many people you know and i hear from people all over the world that will reach out to me and talk about the situation that they're in a bad situation and a yeah. negative situation and, and you know it's hearing from people like you that makes everyone realize i need to make the best of what i have you know i need to make the best of the situation i'm in because if you guys could do it anyone could do it
1: you know it, uh, again, you know this sounds like grand high level philosophy but it it was it was almost a survival technique you know it was almost hey, this is the way that we can make it through this is uh, is believing in in the future and believing in ourselves and I look back on that six years and it was probably the most important six years of my life because because I came through this silly th- experience with um with this kind, of, this kind of discipline, in this kind of thought process, that hey, uh, it's not the hand you're dealt, it's the way you play the hand you're dealt. And you may not have four aces this, this round, you know? <laughs> you, may, you may have trash, but if you play it right, it can still be a winning hand.
0: <laughs> uh, a little bit of talk about you coming home, back to the book. My first impressions of home were not too encouraging. Newspapers and magazines were devoted largely to the drug problem permissiveness the energy crisis abounding crime rate and eroding and eroding And eroding family structures. I was worried worried from a selfish viewpoint I had sacrificed many years for my country and I didn't want some young whippersnappers destroying it but I decided to give myself a one-year moratorium before taking a firm stand on any of my observations and I found that the news media in particular had exaggerated the negative. I didn't have my wallet stow- stolen, nor did I see opium dens or gang wars when I visited schools. Instead, I was pleasantly surprised with student demeanor. Young people freely asked questions and showed a genuine concern for answers. To me, they seemed to have been unduly criticized by an inpatient adult society rather than given been given wise answers council they have more freedom and I think they are generally capable of handling those freedoms they are more mature than their counterparts of my generation they have to be to survive and one of the reasons I called that little section out is because guess what we hear about the Millennials right now we hear the same thing about the Millennials Mm. and maybe just Everyone should give a little moratorium on themselves. <laughs> I'm going to start imposing more moratoriums on myself. I think that's yeah. a great idea. You know, yeah. I'm going to start definitely doing that self imposed <laughs> moratoriums on things. Yeah, you, see, you hear, and you know, meet with, uh, you know, we work with a lot of businesses and companies, and people will ask us about, you know, we got these millennials and, and it's so hard to lead them. And I, I say, oh, why is that? Because they want to understand why they're doing what they're doing? Because they want to know what the goal and purpose of their of of their job is that's nothing new oh because they're because they want to step up and run things I want that person working for me (laughs) so yeah put a little moratorium right back to the book while in prison I had a lot of time to think the same question kept popping in my mind what am I doing here I'm 10,000 miles from home cooped up in a communist prison camp unable to enjoy all the wonderful freedoms I was sent here to protect My first answer was obvious. I'm fighting for my country. I'm serving the United States of America I'd learned in school that America was purple mountain majesties and amber amber waves of grain that it was Congress and the executive and the judiciary these were self-evident but I had to get more personal than that America had to mean more it had to relate to my own freedoms the product of nearly 200 years of a pioneering spirit my nation is a skinny kid who climbs on his bike before dawn to sling newspapers my country is a librarian who sits behind glasses with pencil in her hair and is quick to find answers to my questions my homeland is a truck driver who smiles down from his cab and signals me through the intersection my America is a personal friend and I am proud to serve her and and you go on to say that there must be a thousand definitions for freedom mine is simple freedom is the ability to walk through the door it's not the act of walking through that's proof of freedom it's not going to church or speaking one's mind or demonstrating in the streets freedom is the ability to choose whether to go to church to step up on a soapbox to carry placards now that I am released again I move about at will I say what I wish I criticize and take criticism I feel freer now than ever before because I know what freedom is. I appreciate those freedoms because I was once denied them. And is there anything, is there anybody that appreciates <laughs> freedoms more than people that have had those freedoms denied?
1: Uh, probably not.
0: Is there any way to transfer the appreciation for those freedoms? I mean, I'm doing my darndest You're doing
1: your darndest. (laughs) And and uh, we're in the same business. You know, I I speak a couple of times a week all over the country, have since I came home, trying to impress this on people. But the truth is, there's no way that you or I can put people in that situation that we've been in and make them feel the way they feel. There's no way I could deny a a person a freedom. I I, I do corporate workshops uh, as you do. And... Uh, and I'll put, I'll put a person in a, in a room by themselves with nothing there for 15 minutes and they go crazy. You
0: know, do you take their phone away from them?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. You can cut
0: that down to five minutes with my kids. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) They're going
1: nuts. And so, uh, there's very little, well, I should say it this way. It's difficult to make that transfer. To make a person appreciate freedom when they've never lost theirs. And all I can do is tell the story. Yeah, And I appreciate your helping me tell the story.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm trying over here. I'm going to, you know, occasionally I just have to go the, a little bit of the distance on some stuff that I have to read in here. <laughs> okay. And this is one of those situations to, to, to wrap up because I think this is just uh, such an important message for me, for everybody. Back to the book. I'm often asked how did you do it commander how could you take six years of filth brutality and loneliness I could have never done it my answer is of course you could as a matter of fact you rub elbows each day with people who have done it we weren't the only prisoners millions of Americans have experienced the manacles of the body or shackles of the mind They have been bound by unfortunate external circumstances automobile accidents disease natural disaster paralyzing grief from the loss of a loved one they have suffered deprivation and humiliation once a victim of misfortune many become too insecure to open doors instead they allow themselves to wallow in despair they become alcoholics drug addicts unfaithful wives or husbands unruly children inability to face personal responsibility is often hidden in seemingly innocent pastimes golf poker television sleep these diversions spawn intense feeling of guilt and worthlessness and some victims ultimately isolate themselves and become despondent a Few commit suicide I Had ample opportunity to damn society and curse my fate But what good would that have done? To be sure the Vietnamese would not have released me simply because I felt sorry for myself On the contrary they used every available means to make that happen a despondent prisoner was a prime candidate for communist indoctrination my secret for enduring six years of hell is really not a secret at all first and foremost I had faith in God knowing that his will would be done I never doubted that I could persevere I simply trusted God's promise to answer my prayers I also loved my country its people and its freedoms I realized that because of the human element mistakes could be made but in growing up I had discerned that most of the people in this great land are honorable honorable and compassionate second I had self-discipline it would have been easier to avoid church torture by succumbing to North Vietnamese interrogation it would have been easier to assume helplessness by blaming an evil world I could have rationalized myself into mental and physical paralysis however strict self-obedience gave me the ability to persevere finally I had pride I was proud to know an omnipotent God I was proud of my country and its heritage I was proud of my family I was proud of myself faith discipline pride each of these nurtured the others combined they allowed me to endure I have joined the ranks of millions of Americans who have applied heroic principles in overcoming hardships every day a disabled veteran steps away from his wheelchair every day a life is resumed after a death in the family friendships erase loneliness addicts throw away the crutch of alcohol or drugs or obsessions Every day, someone discovers how to love life, no matter what the obstacle. Every day, someone sees the light at the end of the tunnel. These ordinary Americans are not held in esteem as heroes, yet they have suffered grave misfortune and have recovered, just as I. So you see, I'm no hero, and I think it's that very humility, sir, that makes you a hero because you are certainly a hero to me and certainly a hero to this great nation.
1: well thank you thank you for that. <clears throat> and I throw uh, those bu- bouquets right back at you. Yeah. You're one of my heroes.
0: I Don't accept sir (laughs) (laughs) Not at all Um, You know as you look at other people's struggle With all the things that you mentioned the drugs the alcohol the obsession the depression after the loss of a loved one How can people find the faith The discipline the pride that you talk about, what do you think is that kernel, that starting point that allows those things to grow in someone's mind so that they can overcome these kind of challenges?
1: I I think the first seed that you have to plant and nurture in your mind is that you still have the choice, that you still are in control. Because I think so many people that get bogged down with these challenges we're talking about assume that there's no way out, that, that it's somebody else's problem or somebody else has to, to, to affect their lives and they feel like they have no control over the, over the outcome. And so I think that's the beginning part of it is that um, each of us makes decisions every day that control our destiny. And it truly is not the things around us it's, it's, our, it's our, our approach to the things around us. It's our definition of the things around us. It's our willingness to accept a challenge and make choices about the things around us. And so if you can, if you can nurture that, if you can believe that, yes, I have control of my life. I am, I am the master of my fate. I'm the, I'm the captain of my soul. Um, and if you can really believe that, then the rest is just a matter of the discipline it takes to work through
0: it you know it's interesting i was talking you know I was talking to your son alex and we were we were talking about how you know as he was growing up and he was hearing your sort of philosophy of life and the world and and when he heard me on on the podcast and he started saying wait a second i've heard, i've heard this kind of stuff before <laughs> and and then we were talking about how you know i've i've Kind of said that now that you know there's some I hate to go so far as to say universal truths but mm-hmm. there's certainly some things in human nature and human life that are very similar across the board and when you take people and you put them through this 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 crazy thing of life and you p- provide them with some similar challenges they're gonna come to very similar conclusions and 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 from what you just said you know there's two things that you said that I say all the time and and, and number one this perspective of you know how, what's that initial spark to say hey I can take discipline I can take pride the, the first thing in my mind you got to say is like okay these problems that are happening I gotta I gotta take ownership of what I can do I can take ownership of my problems right. I can't blame this guy I can't blame that guy I, I gotta take ownership through of them and that's the first thing and then the other piece that you said that I say all the time is you got decisions to make you got little decisions to make and if you can make that right decision if you can do the right thing at that moment in time it's not gonna change your life that one decision won't change your life but then you're gonna three minutes later 30 seconds later an hour later you're gonna make another decision and can you hold the line and get yourself pointed in the right direction and can you have the discipline to do that can you have the faith in yourself that you're gonna make that happen and can you have the pride and you know uh Dick Winters talked about that too on the last po- last podcast uh, you know Dick Winters from the first the 506 band of mm-hmm. brothers mm-hmm. but one of the big things that he was concerned about with his men was if the if he st- saw them begin to lose pride mm-hmm. And how Hey, if I don't care what echo thinks of me if I come in here I'm not ready for this podcast and he's gonna look at me like oh I guess Jocko's just letting it slide and all of a sudden if I don't care anymore I don't care anymore now I'm not preparing now I'm not getting ready and and then you take someone in combat and they start to lose pride and all of a sudden they say I don't care who sees me acting the wrong way who sees me slacking off on a watch who sees me not cleaning my weapon if I don't care about that anymore that's the beginning of that downward spiral and pride is one of those Things that you have to be careful of because just like any other dichotomy that we have as human beings yes you can get so much pride that you no longer think you can do anything wrong in which we know where that leads (laughs) that's right and you can have not enough pride to keep yourself on the right path amazing stuff Uh, echo did you have any questions just wondering
3: yeah, well, this one part I kind of wanted to reflect on that I thought was pretty important, even on a smaller like the part where you were regarding the um, the guards as in their own prison, you know. So mm-hmm. you almost like you said that they had it worse than you did. Mm-hmm. So. It, this one time my wife told me this story where she was in the checkout line, you know, in the, in the store. <laughs> you gotta, uh, a lot sort of, of stuff happens in wait, the checkout the, line.
0: A lot of things happen with the grocery store. <laughs> yeah, with yeah. The, yeah. With the a lot fan. of lessons. A lot of lessons.
3: <laughs> so she was, she found herself in the express line, but she had more than the fifteen items, you know. Right. And the guy right. behind her started. He was tripping the whole time, though. So she's paying. She's trying to hurry up, and he's like, "You, you know, you know, uh, what do you call it, loud talking? Like talking to uh, the person." Next to him about my wife, mm. so after the whole ordeal, it was kind of like a scene, you know. So my wife afterwards was like, "Oh, I I hope you have a
0: nice day," you know, like I, you know, she left. Wait, so, did she say it earnestly? Yeah, that didn't sound real earnest the way. Yeah, you said it. well, and I don't, I know I don't your know. wife good I enough don't to think that she probably.
3: Yeah, she was probably salty for sure, but at the end of the day, it's kind of like, Hey, I hope you have a nice day." And she, so she told me that story, and she was like, "But you know what? A big part of me was like, he has to go home." with himself you know Mm, and I get to come home and be cool and have all my girl you know all this stuff and I was like dang that's a good way to look at it because he has to go home he's probably pissed yeah
0: for the day and you know she gets to go home with 17 grocery items too (laughs) (laughs) after blazing through the checkout line (laughs) blazing blazing right through it's true
3: um Oh yeah, one question. You know when you got arrested when you bought that scooter, right? The Cushman? <laughs> right. Yeah, He's yeah. been thinking about this for three yeah, hours. Right now. I've been in this experience because you get the scooter ray, you pack your friend, yep, right? And yep, then the yep, cops say stop yep, you. That yep. happened to us all the time. But why did they arrest you though? I mean, is it like, hey, you guys can't
1: do that? You're going to jail. <laughs> uh, well, it was rather unusual, I think, for these these yeah, cops right? to see these two little guys. Yeah. You know, we were uh, 13 and 14 years old, and then we weren't yeah. very big uh, to begin with. And the, the motor scooter was bigger than we were. Yeah. And it's in the middle of the night, and we're. Tra- we're, tra- we're I, I, I think they they felt uh, they felt like there was something suspicious. Yeah, yeah, on yeah, you there. Just took it, you <laughs> stole it. <Yeah. laughs>
0: uh, well. Uh, all right, Echo. What, sir, do you have anything else on that on that right there? No. Okay. Uh, no, 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 no further details on the scooter rides. <laughs> no, <I didn't> <laughs> We got well, that cleared yeah, man, <laughs>
1: we'll we'll drop that. Uh,
0: <laughs> Echo. Yes. Um, you know, do you think that you could maybe tell us how to support the podcast? Sure. <laughs>
3: of course I can. That's what I'm here for. One of the many reasons. So, um, if you want to support this podcast many ways, first way. You can support yourself. I, I said it before. I'm going to say it again on it. Supplements, right? If you're doing physical stuff, supplements, that gets you through. I'm not going to spend too much time on it. I want to. I won't. I'm going to recommend the krill oil and the strong bone. That's it.
0: See, now, just sir, I'm not letting this. Annoy me I'm just gonna I'm just like okay with it it's my problem yeah. If I don't want to listen to him talk that's my problem he <laughs> has the right to speak for long you know hours about you know this stuff but so we'll here, let him do it. here's
3: the thing though part like <laughs> let's say you were to get annoyed the only reason you'd be annoyed get annoyed is because you know this stuff oh some people right. they don't know there's all
0: those people out or there maybe they want to hear it again on your every word yeah. but the good thing
3: about on it you know that's a good stuff because supplements can be kind of junk sometimes <laughs> but this one hundred percent these, this is the good stuff, and there's stuff for everything in life. Everything. We only talk about the krill oil. Some other stuff, but you go on there. Protein, wellness, even like digestive. Everything they got on there. dot on com. That's where you get it. If you want ten percent off, dot com/jocko. Another way. Before you do your Amazon shopping, click through JockoPodcast. com to do your Amazon shopping, and then uh, you know do your shopping as a normal it's a good way to support small action big reaction it takes what three seconds something like that
2: mm-hmm
3: maybe four I don't know either way do that that's a good way also subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already that's iTunes stitcher Google Play and other podcasting platforms subscribe on YouTube I put some excerpts on there mm-hmm. I Put watched some that more. last one That was, was a good one. good
2: one 12 yeah.
0: minutes Is, is you're, Just so you know You're getting outside The I'm, boundaries I'm of, it in, of an excerpt
3: <laughs> Man I'm listening to it I'm like We yeah, don't want two it hour excerpts, end it Right the there But I'm like Oh wait wait That kind of helped you know, What was so the title like, of that one?
0: Uh, uh, what was it? It's a good one. It's twelve minutes long.
3: Emotion, oh, hangry, getting hangry. Oh, getting you know?
0: a controlling your, stifling your emotions. Your emotions, I can't stifle your emotions. Yes, no, that's
3: exactly right. When it's level two or lower on the Richter, Richter scale, scale of emotions, you can't behave your emotions. Your behavior can't be based anymore. Anyway, look at that little excerpt. Uh, put more on. So what do you subscribe to,
0: Jocko? Podcast YouTube, sub- subscribe to that. That's what you subscribe yeah. to. Okay. Yeah, you know, the Jocko so it's like a channel. YouTube ch- <laughs> the channel. It's like just like Sorry. a channel. It's a YouTube they channel.
3: Anyone who knows about YouTube's going to know this. Okay. I think.
0: I know a little bit about YouTube, but I didn't quite put all that together. It's all good, bro.
3: I think you're already subscribed. You get the notification. I you're, no, all I am subscribed. you're all good. You're all good. 100%. Um, also, Jocko has a store. It's called Jocko Store. JockoStore.com. There's some good stuff on there. T-shirts. If you like T-shirts, we wear T-shirts, right? I know I do. <laughs> some women's stuff on there. Shirts, patches, rash guards, hoodies. New rash guard out. Oh, maybe, maybe, maybe not. You got to look JockoStore.com. Get some good stuff. Oh, uh, We got some kids stuff too on there.
0: Yeah, that's right. You're, you're wearing one of those. Some warrior kids. Some warrior kid, kid stuff. If, if that's you're right. on YouTube, a bunch Model of people were hitting me up for warrior kid. T-shirts, and and then immediately, people said, "We want them for adults too." So we made some for kids, but then adults said we want them. So now we got Warrior Kids. Because can you be a forty-five-year-old Warrior Kid? I think I am. Yes, I think I'm in the game (laughs) as a Warrior Kid.
3: (laughs) Yeah, and if you didn't, I mean, you're gonna obviously talk about the Warrior Kid, wear the Warrior Kid book. But man, when you read that book, you're like, "Dang, I wish I would have read this." Whether it be when I'm a kid I wish I would have read it a one day before (laughs) I read it that day It's like that's how much you wish you would have known
0: all this stuff because it's real basic but it's so deep man. Uncle Jake's got some info layers man layers upon layers Yeah, there's people now identifying layers on Twitter by the way, which is a pretty there's been some really good Identification (laughs) of layers. There's some layers in that book. Yeah, they're gonna get deeper too. Yeah, man It's good. So
3: yeah, anyway, yeah back to the store Jocko You can see what's on there. It's cool stuff And if you want to support Get something, you know. Also, psychological warfare. If you don't know what that is, which I know you already do, but in <laughs> the small event that you don't, it is an album on iTunes
0: with tracks
3: and Amazon <laughs> Music with tracks, not music tracks, spoken word tracks. Technically, that's what's called yes, spoken word. Number one, by the way.
0: Yeah, still, still number one Dang. since their release. That, I mean for good reason because and look, yeah I need to put together psychological warfare too. And I got some really good suggestions from everyone yeah. on things that need where we need help yeah. as a group. So if you got those, hit hit us up on Twitter, Twitter to give yeah. suggestions for psychological warfare two, two tracks. Yeah. yeah what you need, areas where we need help. We all need help.
3: Right yeah, now. I got some some, some, some uh Yeah, you gave me officially. 47 requests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're all my personal ones. Yeah, I think I got 48 now. But yeah, if you don't know what that is, it's like, it's an album, you get it. You have, you know, in your journey of what? Getting after it, in your getting after it journey. Mm-hmm. But you, you're not strong the whole time. You're just
0: not. You're gonna have moments of weakness. Most of us
3: aren't, you're gonna have moments of weakness. But guess what? In those moments of weakness you listen to the designated track if you're having a weak moment of weakness when you're trying to wake up at 430 come on bro that's that's early 430 every day yeah the day is probably gonna come where you're like you know what I'm gonna hit the snooze guess what listen
0: to get up and get after
3: get up and get after it there's like two or three of those two and I guarantee you won't hit the snooze you'll get up you'll get after it anyway that's that's what I think with 100% certainty Anyway, again, it's called Psychological Warfare. It's on iTunes and Amazon Music and some other places where you buy and download music. They're on all
0: all up on in there. Yeah. Good. And also, by the way, the book that we reviewed today with Captain Plum, it's available on Charlieplum dot com. C H A R L I E P L U M B dot com. That's where you can get it. It's called I'm No Hero. That's right and also you can get some Jocka white tea on there if you need to drink liquid in your life <laughs> you might as well drink a liquid that's gonna make you smarter nope. stronger yep. faster and a more dynamic human being and there's only one drink that does that and that's jock white tea by the way it's hundred and forty seven percent double-blind placebo <laughs> approved and true and tested yeah. in a laboratory with people wearing white outfits so you know we're good to go <laughs> yeah. Way the warrior kid and this is the book right there. That's gonna hit your kids from another angle Yeah, and it's gonna get them to understand some things like hard work discipline honor physical training mental training studying no one think Jocko was gonna write a book and teach me how to study. They didn't think that, did they, Echo? No. Tell me the truth. They didn't think that. No. They didn't see my college grades, did they? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so you learn how to study, you learn how to get stronger in the book, Wear the Warrior Kid, get it for your kids, and you know what? You're gonna read it first, and then you're gonna get a copy for yourself, way the Warrior Kid, get no. that. Can I say something yeah, about one say small something. part? Yeah, sure. We have another four hours <laughs> of space on the recorder. <laughs> so, so let's do it.
3: There is a part. When he sees small progress, I think he was after one pull up mm-hmm. and he's like, Yeah. Oh yeah. Fired up. It, the part when he said he scolded him a small mild scolding for celebrating too early. Yeah. Or too much too early. Uncle
0: Jake says, Hey take it
3: easy there. yeah good and but then he said now come over here give me a high five and get back to work Ooh, and he <laughs> let him celebrate a little bit that was good man
0: uncle I thought Jake, that was good uncle Jake is a good man yeah it's good he, man he, he, he it's puts good. it out to it right uh also you can pre-order the book discipline equals freedom field manual which explains to you how to get after it so get after it and order the book of course extreme ownership this is for your leadership principles tested, tested in combat, tested in the business world. They're there for you to read, learn, lead, win. And if you need more than that from the book, if you need more than the book in the podcast for your business or your team, Echelonfront, Echelonfront.com, you can email at info at echelonfront.com, leadership and management, consulting, training. Also, the muster number three. three, number three, Austin, Texas, July thirteenth and fourteenth, Omni Barton Creek Resort. I'm not going to say spa anymore. I'm not going to the spa. No, no, yeah. no. no. I'm going to have that Later thing shut it. down while we're there. <laughs> Good. Be no spa going on. Yeah. So come down July thirteenth and fourteenth. Join us in the pursuit of world domination. That's the goal. And if you can't make Texas. You can come to San Diego September 14th and 15th, back in SD Mm -hmm. for number four. And in the meantime, while you're waiting for that, if you have questions or comments for us, you can get us on the interwebs. Now, first of all, speaking of millennials, Captain Plum, sir, you are all up in the technology here. Well (laughs) (laughs) you are on Twitter. At Captain Plum right
1: right Facebook Facebook. What's that at LinkedIn? Yeah, same thing Captain Plum
0: just uh, a Social media junkie is what I'm hearing. (laughs) Yeah, my kids keep me honest (laughs) (laughs) And and you also you mentioned quickly while we were talking that you do speaking engagements and all that where's the best place to contact you for those type of Uh, Events or consulting
1: all on my website Charlieplum.com. It's all it's all there awesome. So
0: And that's where they can find you as far as echo and myself we are also Cruising on the interwebs on Instagram on Twitter Echo is at echo Charles. I am at Jocko Willink and we are also In the Facebook so you can check that one as well. Echo, you got anything else for us today?
3: I don't, thank you so much, Dan.
0: Surely. an honor. And sir, do you have anything, any other closing thoughts you wanna add?
1: Well, I wanna tell you about the rest of the story. Since people might be interested in knowing that my ex-wife married the guy she was engaged to, and they're, they've been living happily for the last 43 years. I remarried a wonderful lady, you have four kids, two grandkids and one on the way. Yes. My daughter is married to a Marine and they're pregnant with her first child, should be due, in fact, any day now, Semper Fi. my daughter. I have a wonderful wife that supports me and that uh, <laughs> puts up with me. Uh, and uh, and, and, and I'm, I'm living the dream, I really am. I don't know how I could be happier in my life. I could not write a story that would bring more fulfillment uh, to me personally than what I already live. I still fly airplanes. I have two airplanes. I have a, a home in a hangar as well, my man cave, and uh, it's just it's it's a delight to be alive. And I appreciate you for helping me tell my story because uh, I believe it's an important story. Now not everybody is going to be a prisoner of war. In fact, I hope, I hope and pray none of the people listening to this podcast will ever be in that eight foot cell that I was in, but we all get into our own little prisons and, and we can be, I'm convinced just as confined in our little eight inch box as I was in an eight foot prison cell. And so if, if those challenges are the same, then the solution is the same. Uh, the solution to the prisons that we find ourselves in—you know—the self-discipline that it takes, the believing that yes, I am in control of, of my my own life. I, I am a captain of my soul, and uh, and that I do and I, I do make a difference. So you put all those things together, and um, and you you can in fact live the life with the hand that you're dealt.
0: I won't even uh, try and make any additional points on that other than to say when you have a hangar with two planes in it for your man cave <laughs> you win the man cave contest absolutely <laughs> that's unbelievable and sir obviously I, I I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast for writing the book for sharing the knowledge that you paid so dearly to acquire and More important than all that I can't thank you enough for your service and your sacrifice for six years for us and for this great nation and you dedicate your book very simply to the families of those brave men who will never return and for those families and for those brave men we will live and we will try to live as you have exemplified with faith and pride and discipline to overcome whatever Hardships we might face and whatever obstacles might be in our path. And through those adversities, discover every day how to love this life. So, until next time. This is Captain Charlie Plum and Echo and Jocko out.